and welcome to JNK Presents. As this month, we will be discussing the third season of the HBO show Barry. You should assume that we are going to spoil all three seasons up to this point. So if you have not watched it, then please go do so and then come back and listen to us. My name is Jerome Cusan. You can find me on Twitter at Jerome C1985. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network. Uh, that includes such podcasts as Superhero Pantheon, which Brian DeBrain and I do. Uh, if you go into the archives, you can listen to Kevin uh, talk about From Broadcast Depth. and uh, He has an Adventure Time podcast. Uh, Kevin and I have discussed uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul on Real Bad, as well as Mars Investigated, not to mention Cancel Too Soon, plus a bevy. We are just doing so many podcasts here on the real world. So go and leave a four or five star review. You can find Kevin Ford on Twitter at K Ford 13. He's not really on Twitter that much. So I don't know, follow him, do, do whatever you want. But Kevin, we are here to discuss the third season of Barry. I'm not going to lie after, after the most recent season of better call Saul, I'll be like, you know what, Kevin, it'll be nice to just sit back, relax and watch the comedy that is Barry. But Kevin, little did we know that this entire season, all four hours, kind of felt like watching a panic attack. So much so that I guess a staff member on Barry while watching the last episode legitimately did have a panic attack. Wow. So it wasn't just the I wonder if that. Well, I guess it couldn't have been because it was in the maybe it was it the penultimate ultimate episode where um, the one character does have a panic attack producing the, the TV show. So I wonder if that's written in true to life or is just a coincidence. Sounds like it was a coincidence. I guess it was the last episode specifically because so much is going on in the 29 minute season finale, which bravo to Bill Hader for being like, you know what? Eight episodes, no more than 30 minutes. That's our limit. Thank you, Bill Hader. My my birthday brother. Thank you. Yeah, I think what you could watch the whole thing in four hours if you just sit down and watch it through, which is shorter than some AEW pay-per-view. So that was especially after Better Call Saul, which I don't even I don't think ever felt too long or or abused its time or anything like that but after that this felt like a breezy watch but a but a heavy watch i think they they took the black comedy aspect and went way more to the black aspect than the comedy aspect this season which is uh up to you i suppose to decide if that's a good or bad thing yeah i don't necessarily know if we even can consider barry a comedy at this point Although there are some very, very funny moments that we are going to point out as we go through this. And I'm probably going to try to go out of my way to mention them just because it does feel like the comedy is so much less. But let's kind of let's kind of position things as we are coming here into the third season. So season three starts approximately six months after the end of season two. And our characters are in a little bit of a different position. Barry is doing uh, random hit jobs at this point. Uh, he looks very haggard. He has kind of a half beard going on. Uh, Gene Cousineau knows that Barry commit is the one uh, that killed his girlfriend. The acting class is no longer going on. They will no longer be a factor, which I'm not going to lie. I think it really freshens the show up. And 
I think it really gives us time to uh, luxuriate a little bit with some of the with some of the other storylines, and that we don't really have to go back to whatever the acting class is doing. We also have Sally writing, producing, and directing and starring in her own television show, and uh, there's some very interesting commentary uh, that we are going to get to in talking about that. Plus, Noho Hank may be, Kevin, in the healthiest relationship of anybody on this show. I don't know what that says, but he is uh, he's together with Cristobal as uh, we got kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing going on with the Bolivians and the Chechnyans, their kind of forbidden relationship, so to speak. So that is what's kind of going on. Kevin, what were your expectations coming into season three, kind of knowing what we were uh, set up for? Not, uh, I didn't really have that many expectations just because, and refresh my memory, when did Barry season two finish? Uh, this finished before the pandemic. Uh, this was in, I believe, like the spring of 2019. Right. So it had been a long time. And I'd obviously remembered the big ending of season two with Cousineau, with Fuchs telling Cousineau that it was Barry who killed Janice. And so I was like, okay, that's that's the only expectation I have is how does that resolve? But I didn't really come into it with really any expectations, just wondering where we were going to go with these characters. Like, how long would it be until Gene confronts Barry um, with this information? And I'm glad they did it the way they did, where it's like they rip the bandaid off with that and it progresses the season the way it does. But not not really any expectations at all. I was just sort of happy to see it back. I was extremely happy to see Barry back. I'm not sure if I necessarily appreciated the fact that it was coming out amidst just an absolute glut of of TV shows. Just a remarkable run of peak TV taking place in the months of April and May. So many shows coming out in order to meet the Emmy eligibility. Barry is included in that. I think Barry, among... I would look at some of these shows and be like, you're not, you're not winning an Emmy. Barry is not one of those shows. It is a proven, it has a proven history. So I understand the logic of HBO saying, you know what, this is one of our, this is one of our big awards contenders, maybe not the most highest rated show. You know, it's not Game of Thrones. It's not Westworld. It's not a franchise, but in the comedy category, especially the comedy category, is going to be wide open this year. There is a lot of potential for this to do well. Uh, Bill Hader could win for acting, directing, writing. Henry Winkler won his first Emmy ever for this show, so I think it's perfectly understandable that they would that this that this would come out in April. It's just unfortunate that maybe it got a little bit lost in the pack. But thankfully, a couple of episodes did air in June. So especially the finale, there was some good buzz about it. I also want to point out to people, if you have not had a chance, uh, Bill Hader has done a number of podcasts with The Ringer, uh, Sean Fantasy, on their Prestige TV feed. So if you would like to listen to Bill Hader talk about the show for... Um, you know, about four hours, just like he did uh, producing the show. Uh, you could go listen to that on the Ringer feed. And he talks pretty extensively about the filmmaking process, the writing process, the acting process. It's very, very interesting. And I would strongly recommend you do that. Uh, I will be splicing in a couple of nuggets that he dropped uh, throughout this podcast, but I don't want to spoil it um, because I want people to listen uh, to what he had to say. He also, I believe he did an interview. He was doing weekly interviews with the Vulture covering very similar terrain. So there are lots of places to read or listen to Bill Hader 
also talking about this show. So Kevin, anything else, any any other preamble before we get into actually discussing the individual episodes? There isn't really a great time to ask this. So because you mentioned the podcast, I'm wondering, did they mention why every episode of this season, with the exception of ex- episode six, which is numerical, all the episodes are in lowercase? That is not something that was ever brought up in any of the interviews that I that I uh, listened to. Uh, he talked a lot about kind of putting the episodes together. He talked about like the reason that the Ben Mendelsohn situation happened and how, how that connects to him personally, but he did not talk about anything being choked in, in lowercase. Just something as I was streaming and looking at the episode titles, obviously they all come from stuff that's said in the episodes, but I was just curious if there was a stylistic choice behind that. There's like, I think two episodes in season two that are kind of the same way, but they also involve like, like one is is Ronnie slash Lily, and the last one's like Berkman greater than Block. So I'm like, okay, so they include non-numeric, non-alphabetical characters. So there's something there, but then the rest of the season was just that way. Um, just, just you know, just just uh, was curious if they if they had explained that. So nope, nothing, no other preamble. Let's get into this season. Episode one is called "Forgiving Jeff," and we find out immediately why this is called "Forgiving Jeff." As uh, as Charles wants Jeff murdered, these are two people that are really not all that relevant to the show. Ma- the main purpose of this is we get to see how over Barry is over everything. It seems uh, we see him eating a donut, and uh, Kevin, who would have thought? Who would have thought that Barry eating pastries would become such an important running runner for the show? Not me, that's for sure. But I think watching this back. I watched I watched the season like I watched um, like four episodes at one time, wait a few weeks. Then I watched the back half of the the season. Then I sat down and watched all of it again the day before recording this and knowing where it went. Forgiveness is a huge theme of the season, I feel. And I think him this opening scene, he says there's no forgiving Jeff. Rang some bells in my head. It's like, okay, I see where. I see where this is going. It's a very funny scene isolated, but once you get the bigger picture of the scene, you're like, okay, I, I, I understand what they're doing here. Um, set it, setting up the tone for the rest of the season. The one thing I will say is, especially because there's so much TV and you and I are watching so many other things besides this. And, you know, we have work lives and you're in school. Like there's so much going on. I think rewatching this season, I definitely walked away with a much better appreciation of everything that they were doing. And I also felt like I understood a lot more what was going on. There's one specific plot line that I'm going to get to um, where I think that is especially the case, Kevin. But I I know that rewatching this season definitely made a huge difference. Same here. And I I texted you the same thing. I had a, a, a weird, like not great taste about the season after watching the back half. But then when I watched all of it together consistently, my my opinion of the whole show of the season, I should say, improved dramatically after watching it all together. So if you haven't watched it yet or you watched it week to week, I would definitely recommend if you have the time to to watch it more succinctly, because I think a lot of the stories make more sense. A lot of little things you pick up make more sense. It's it's a much better watch altogether, which I think is a strength of the uh, strength of any show in general. See, to me, I, I think that there are a lot of similarities between Barry and the better the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad universe in terms of there's a lot of great setups and payoffs. I don't think Barry is as into, like, process stuff. Like, you're not going to see a 15-minute montage of, like, um, 
you know, putting something together. You're not, you're just not going to get that. You're going to get a lot of, uh, a little bit more shock and awe, I would say. But I think that there, there are, there's a lot of great setups and payoffs. And I think this first scene kind of does that. So eventually in this opening scene, Charlie says to call it off and that he is going to forgive Jeff. Uh, Barry is just fucking annoyed at all of this. He shoots them both in the head. And uh, Kevin, there's so many lines that I'm going to quote, but I love this one. There's no forgiving Jeff. No, it's like you call me out to kill him and then you forgive him. Like, no, that's not how this works. Where was Barry at the end of season two? Like him and Sally had just finished their stage show or is that season one? I, I yeah, had a hard time there, remembering there were, where There are stage shows at the end of seasons one and two. And I think that's one of the reasons that Bill Hader wanted to end the acting class to kind of get away from that. Just so you're not being as repetitive. So that's definitely what happened. Bill Hader was kind of coming off a high at the end of season two. He had also auditioned for that movie, uh, the Jay Roach movie that does get referenced later on in the season, which we'll talk about. So Bill uh, Barry was very much at a high and now he's kind of at a low. Uh, very much because it's six months later. And I think it's it speaks a lot to, I think there's people who are like, you know, hey, you're really good at math or you're really good at accounting. Why aren't you an accountant? And it's like, well, just because I'm good at something doesn't mean I have to make it my job. Like Barry's an incredible hitman. That's why he made so much money and why he does his job. But it doesn't bring him any joy or spark any interest in his life. So he's just doing it for the paycheck. But but I, but that's the humor, right? It's something that's so horrible that he's that he's killing these people just for for a paycheck and he's good at it and it doesn't face him whatsoever so it speaks to him growing tired of doing this but also uh just his sociopathy in general that he's able to and and that's why he has the nickname Iceman as they as they talk about he's just able to coldly kill people like it's a job and he's great at it but it doesn't give him the the spark that acting does uh so we transition over to Sally she is putting the final touches on the third episode of her streaming show, Joplin. We see Sally very much in control. She's even telling Barry when to come in, when he's going to bring her. Barry is annoyed. He's just, he's so over everything, Kevin. I feel like this is very, this feels very pandemic-y to me. Like, Barry's just so over everything. And I think we see that Sally is being so performative and i think we've seen this in the first two seasons but especially these first few episodes of season three sally is not only trying to control everything on her tv show but she is also trying to control everything with barry as well and that really clicked to me when there's the scene where sally is walking through her set and going through all the stuff but then you see barry walking with the flowers that she's told him to pick up Say, making sure to make sure that it's not yellow flowers, making sure when she asks about lunch, you say, oh, I can't make it. I have an audition. But the way that he walks and holds the flowers is very like robotic and mechanic. There's no warmth or like humanity in the way he walks, which speaks to Barry, but also goes to show that this isn't this fun, spontaneous thing he's doing. This is all premeditated by Sally to seem spontaneous in the moment. Like you said, you said it perfectly. Like Sally is setting up every little thing in her life to be perfect. And I think it really speaks to her lack of joy and enjoying some of these moments. Because if everything goes according to plan, there's no fun surprise to it. Just, okay, yeah, that's exactly how it was supposed to go. You're only setting yourself up for disappointments when things don't go your way. There's so much great body language in that scene that shows just exactly how the nature of their relationship is and how Sally and and Barry are as individuals as well. So now we go to the police station as Detective May Dunn is interviewing some of the Chechnyans and eventually they want to bring in NoHo Hank. 
there is a nice big scramble as they hide the heroin, which I thought was pretty funny. How much time should we spend talking about Hank's Sherbert colored shirt? That's, I mean, the wardrobe for, for him could take a whole podcast in and of itself, for sure. Yeah. I also love how excited he is to finally get his first uh, call to, to be brought in for questioning. So the thing that's amazing to me is that it's very clear that Hank has killed people in the past. That's what some of his tattoos are based on. But the fact that this is his very first interrogation is is pretty amazing to me. The interrogation scene itself is 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 just chef's kiss. It's it's perfect. No notes. I love the fact that uh, Hank is using his little glasses to read. Not as little as Batista and Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which is unfortunate. But I, I do love that Hank uh, uses his little glasses. Oh my god, that is such a great like performance bit of it, where he has to like <laughs> pretend to not know where it is, what it is. Like, what does this say? And he's like. See, I got to put on my glasses to get a closer look and investigate to throw off the scent that he's familiar with this pin. It's such a good, such a good choice for Hank to do that, uh, to make it seem like he's uh, innocent. I loved it. So the thing is that the police on this show are incredibly incompetent. I think Mae Dunn, they try to position her a little bit higher than some of the other people, but it's very clear that she's also not very good at her job either. Uh, she does connect the monastery to what happened with Janice Moss. Hank sarcastically applauding. Uh, I love, I love the other police officer um, talking about where his patience was and where it is. And I feel like I need to use that bit in real life. He he is an incredible background comedy machine this entire season, and like that's something I, that I didn't realize watching it week to week. But just the incompetence he has or the humor that he presents is amazing. Pay attention to him in the scenes he's doing because he throws out some hilarious one liners or later when he's more concerned about the the like the task force he puts together, what the logo is going to look like versus actually finding the person. He's incredible or like I'll get to it later when he says it. But there's a line that had me laughing out loud in the in the finale. But. These two detectives, like, I don't feel like they were that funny in the first two seasons. I don't even know if we see the male one that much, but they are hilarious in these in in each of their scenes. If you just pay attention to what they're saying. Yeah, the police are are a pleasant diversion. It's funny that the police like the police officers are kind of the running gag of the show and kind of the funnier elements, given this is supposed to be a comedy and Barry isn't the one that's really delivering a lot of the comedy. So I think that's, that is something worth pointing out now. Maybe that's a deliberate choice based on all the stuff that's happened since season two aired in season three. Absolutely. So we do get Fuchs. Uh, We're going to check in on Fuchs as he is an un, he is in an undisclosed location eating crappy cereal and getting milk from a goat which is pretty hysterical the goats are actually important kind of in a way he talks about wanting to watch college football now i want to mention this this is going to be important when we talk about a later storyline that fuchs is involved in but fuchs mentions specifically that he is not able to stream which also again something that is important later but he mentions that he is a fan of ohio state football and i'll explain why that's important later and it's also clear that Hank is the one who wants him in this undisclosed location. Uh, anything to say about Fuchs? Um, his, his run, his runner about falling in love with women in the middle of nowhere is also a great joy in this season. Yes, I. So I think they said he's he's somewhere in Chechnya. I don't know if they disclose where it is, 
But I like that he's really taken to the life out there with the goats and everything, and he finds a lot of pleasure in it. You know, you could tell me later what it means, but the Ohio State conversation, I to me, was a good time place thing to let us know it's in, you know, er, you know late summer or fall or, you know, early-ish fall because he's like, oh, this time of year I'd be watching Ohio State. I haven't missed a game in 35 years or whatever. So it, it's just another, like, placing it in reality of a, of a time period for me. But seeing him hiding it but thriving in that area – explains why he's contacting people uh, back home to do the work for him, I think, too. He's not getting his hands dirty. He's enjoying his own little private life and and really thriving at the time. And it's going to take something something big for him to, to come out of that. Uh, we get Dunn and her cohorts. They are interviewing uh, Gene Cousineau, and Cousineau points at Fuchs and, and points out a connection to Barry. Dunn refers to Fuchs as the Raven, and Cousineau makes official mention uh, that the acting class is dead. I did like that it, we, we get to see how, like, um, mentally just, like, in a fog that Cousineau is as he's being talked to. Barry is looking for hitman jobs. Well, one thing I will point out is whatever website he's on is, like, looks like it was made in, like, 1996. <laughs> it's, like the dark, it's like the dark web version of, like, what do they call Angel, that? Ta- Angel like, Fire? Ta- yeah, but I was thinking, like, TaskRabbit for hitmen, basically. Uh, but also worth pointing out is the Unforgiven by Metallica is playing in the background as he's doing this. So still on that same forgiven note there. Yes. Yeah, so Barry does find a job. He is talking to a disgruntled wife while buying flowers. It's this is a pretty funny, it, just a pretty funny interaction. I don't think there really is a lot to say about it. It's just Barry having awkward conversations in public will never not be funny because he clearly has no social tact whatsoever. No. And, and again, he's like. He's he's talking to this person about a, a a hit job, and obviously this it's a very emotionally volatile thing for the person on the other end, and for him he's barely listening as he's trying his best to pick out flowers in the supermarket to bring to Sally and ask for their opinion on it, and I love the line where she's like, something. What was the question she asked about? Like, when did have you always been a psychopath or something like that? Yes, it was it was something to that effect. I did not I did not put the exact line down, but yeah, it's definitely it's, something in that area. So we do get a little bit of a scene from Joplin, and we are introduced to Katie Harris, as played by Elsie Fisher. Uh, Kevin, is Elsie Fisher familiar to you at all? Nope, not at all. Uh, did you see the movie Eighth Grade, or have you heard of the movie Eighth Grade? I have seen the movie Eighth Grade. That is your lead performer from Eighth Grade. That's where wow. you recognize her from. She looks a lot different in this show. I did not make. I, I I was like this. This woman looks very familiar to me. And I could not put my finger on it. But then I I looked at her IMDb, which is where you get the answer to everything these days. I was like, of course she was the lead. In eighth grade, a a very good film done by Bo Burnham. Katie Harris is kind of the conscience of the show, I would say, in a lot of ways. And I think for Sally specifically, she very much is kind of a, she's a great person to play off of because she is not superficial. She's not performative. Uh, I very, very much liked her character. And I wanted to say that here because I'm not sure if we're going to get into some of the specifics, but from a character perspective, I think Katie Harris is somebody that this show desperately needed. For sure. And I think it's great to have someone who has, it's interesting because it's like she has, she's young. She has a fresher perspective. I think there is also this, we kind of have this cultural shift going on between younger people and older people and about expectations and relationships, what is and isn't okay. 
obviously Sally's background of her previous abuse that she's had in relationships versus what she has with Barry. Maybe it's one of those things by comparison. It's not so bad. Maybe she's manufactured her world to the, in a way where she doesn't even notice things like this, or she's numb to it. It makes her character such a great person to play off of. And to me, it was, it was so believable how it, it's she it's stewed in her and and felt so wrong and she talked to other people about it and how she eventually comes to Sally with it and how she kind of like awkwardly walks away all of it felt very real and I thought she was a really great character uh to to play off of um mostly for the first half of the season she doesn't have too much to do in the second half I don't think and I I wonder if she is one of those characters that we are not going to see in season four. They don't really have a lot for her to potentially do, but it was very, very cool uh, to see her in, in such a good role. Uh, we transitioned to a meeting with executives at, at this point in, in episode one, I don't believe that we have the name of the streaming service. We would eventually uh, find out that is that it is called Banshee, B-A-N-S-H-E. Uh, clearly this is designed to be kind of a female driven created streaming service the executives are female so that's that's cool right yes yeah, so sally they're having a meeting talking about like what the show is going to look like and just i would imagine that the writers had so much fun with everything involving sally's storyline because just the it's very inside hollywood a lot of it is just with how the executives speak with how the executives behave uh, we also do get Darcy Carden back as Natalie as well, and I'm very glad that Natalie had a lot more to do this season and ends in a much better position, which we will get to, but it was great to see her back. Unfortunately, because Natalie spoke up in a meeting, Sally is really not happy with her. Sally says that she wants to bring Natalie up, but warns her to not speak in meetings, but does ask her to uh, to make the carrots the way that she likes them. It's so perfect. Because it shows how full of bullshit Sally is where she's like, oh, the show and all this, I want to empower women and raise up women. And I and I need to – and what's the point of doing this if I can't bring up other women like you? But really you shouldn't speak up in meetings where I'm talking. And then the, the thing that people who are psychopaths think sounds like a compliment but it's really backhanded where she's like, could you cut up the carrots for me? I just love the way you do it. Why would I cook dinner? I love the way you do it. You do it so much better than I do insane people who also let power go to their head do this wouldn't you know it when the assistant gets the same power it just passes down yeah this scene i think is a perfect encapsulation of how sally what sally is right now i also love and we're jumping ahead i love the fact that when they play back the video of sally yelling at natalie the first line we always hear is about the carrots and that will that that tickled i really love this is just this is just filmmaking stuff but we get a great look at how TV works and kind of the claustrophobia in a in a pretty fantastic oneer of the Joplin set as we really see Sally in control. And I love that we get this scene and that we really take some time. We take a good five minutes to kind of examine this scene and just see that that Sally is involved in every aspect of production from the writing, the directing. And I would imagine that there's like a meta commentary here because Bill Hader is the director, producer, writer, and star of his show. So I can see a scenario where this is this is kind of what Bill Hader's life is like. So uh, I really appreciated this scene. I I think it says a lot without using a lot of dialogue. 
And that's why I wanted to mention this, because as as much as we will critique Sally, I think it is important for us to know that this is kind of the peak of her powers right now. Her being on this set with the one shot, her directing, her writing, producing like this is the high point of Sally's career right now. And I also think it's so great to show. And I think this is very real to life. How often, and I, ha- and I have to imagine this is the same thing from the perspective of, perspective of someone in entertainment, where she's doing theater to get to acting, and that's the goal. And if I'm acting, I'm going to be happy. Or maybe from there, it's we're acting, okay, maybe if I can direct, then I'll be happy. And yes, maybe it gets her some money, some fame, and all this stuff, but she is so, like, I think deep down, not a happy person at all in these roles. Like, she has her moments of happiness, but I think the stre- the stress just compounds the problems become different, but I think people always, the grass is always greener, whatever, you know, cliche you want to use. I think it's great to show that she went from being this theater person who aspired to be an actress. And not only that, she's running her own show on her own. She's a lead actress, all this stuff. And deep down, it doesn't bring her any less stress or happiness in her life. It's just, uh, yeah, I think that's that's really true. Just as you grow, the the problems change, the stress changes, all this. And I think that's that's been a really interesting thing to show. So he's having a conversation with Sally, and then we see kind of a bullet hole appear in Sally's head. And this is the first of two times that it happened in this episode. And Kevin, I am not going to lie. When I saw this, and then I saw it again with Gene, I was like, this is totally happening at the end of the season and it's going to be for real, isn't it? So the bullet hole is more metaphorical than anything else. And that's obviously its function. And we see like Barry is clearly trying to keep his relationship with the two people that he thinks he loves. And we're going to kind of see that all disintegrate in front of him in season three. But uh, very striking visual language. And boy, am I glad that this actually did not happen to either Sally or Jean. Me too. And the first time you see it, you're like, whoa, what? Because you don't know that it's not real at first, especially in uh, when they do it with Gene later. It's it's pretty shocking. So uh, it's a really great visual. And it's it goes to it goes to show that Barry is having these moments of delusion or something about, you know, maybe he's tired or whatever else. But Barry seeing things is definitely something that plays out in a very interesting way throughout the season. But yeah, if you see it for the first time, it's really shocking, especially again, when it happens to Gene. Absolutely. So we transition back to seeing what Hank is doing. Uh, He is proud of the way that he handled his interrogation. I mean, it helps the police are utterly incompetent and tells his associates. They talk about turning Fuchs in once and uh, we see Hank going home to flowers and wine and he is with Cristobal. They hype each other up, they take a shower together, and they cuddle in bed while watching Cristobal's laptop. What a what a fantastic little scene as uh, the Hank and the Cristobal relationship is the healthiest, and I don't know what that says about any of the other relationships on this show. They seem to genuinely love each other, and their journey is, is super important. And I think one of the reasons that it was important for me to rewatch is to just understand the mechanics of their relationship and of the storyline, because I definitely feel like I was missing something in the week to week. But watching it again as a binge, I definitely feel like I understand the Hank Cristobal plotline the most now. Yeah, same. That was definitely a weaker part of the season until I rewatched it for me. 
I guess I didn't really understand the nature of the relationship or like the woman that shows up halfway through. I'm like, who is she? Why is she here again? I don't remember them referencing Crystal uh, Cristobal's relationship back home in the first two seasons. So to me, it didn't strike me as that much of a big deal that he was with Hank. You know, I understood the dynamics of them being kind of two warring factions being this thing, like you mentioned with Romeo and Juliet. But I didn't really understand the gravity of Cristobal being with Hank in a different way until rewatching it here. And yes, it is the healthiest relationship for sure. Even with this gigantic lie from Cristobal, like looming large over their relationship too. I, what is what does that say about everyone else's relationships? They have some shared trauma as Barry has basically killed all of their friends. And what you know, Barry shows up at Hank's house. Barry and Hank, it's it's really interesting because the Hank Cristobal storyline feels very separate. And Barry does have this interaction. He has the interaction with the bomb later that we'll get into. But Hank and Cristobal are almost in a different show in a lot of ways in this third season. So that's worth pointing out that we can almost talk about them just on their own, uh, save for these couple of interactions. And uh, Barry's like, uh, so you and Cristobal are an item now. Barry asks Hank for work. Hank talks all about the shitty things that Barry has done to him over the run of the series in the first two seasons. And as Hank was saying this, especially on the rewatch, I was like, you know what? Hank is right. Barry really is just a giant piece of shit. And eventually we get to a point where Hank says this line, Kevin, and I know this is something you are probably going to bring up, but I'm going to say it. Forgiveness is something that has to be earned. Hank pieces out and says he's embracing life. So again, the theme of forgiveness it is in the episode title, it is in the background music, and it is a huge part of this scene as well. Yeah, this this line is the hook to the whole season for me. Forgiveness has to be earned. And until you, you the way you said it makes me realize, like, Hank is kind of living the life that Barry wants. Like, he's, he's tacitly still involved in the drug trade and what he's doing with the Chechens, but he doesn't really want to be. He's kind of keeping an arm's length. His relationship is what's most important to him. By and large, he seems pretty happy. A lot of his interactions with stuff is by a matter of convenience or by orders. While Barry says he wants to be out of the rat race, but seemingly can't, and he goes to extremes and is stressed out and all this. And I couldn't help but think, like, man, Hank has a really beautiful home when they're when they're there and you see his backyard and stuff. So you putting that into perspective makes me realize, like, Hank is really in the place where Barry almost wants to be. I would agree. I think that's, I think that is a very astute point. And uh, I think we've come to a, a good place. And uh, now we can talk about uh, Mr. Cousineau, Gene Cousineau asking for help. He has a gun, but Kevin, this is not just any gun. This is from the desk of Rip Torn, but it's just very funny. Like, of course, Rip Torn would send Gene Cousineau a gun. This is Kevin. This yeah. is a, uh, a literal Chekhov's gun. A literal Chekhov's gun passed away just before, right after season two of Barry. So that was a, a kind of a nice nod. Curious if, and I'm not expecting you to know the answer, but if Rip Torn, like why they chose him. Obviously, like we're saying, you know, that, that sounds like something the, the 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 man himself would do. But is there a special connection he has to, to Henry Winkler or the director or something like that? Why they why they chose him? I, I don't believe so. I think it was just funny, like, of all the people that you would have give Mr. Cousineau a gun. Like, yeah, I just think Rip Torn is, is, a, is a great name. He's, like, I think the fact that he's dead is, is a huge part of it. 
and the fact that the message specifically like something about not shooting your dick off like that's something that Rip Torn would say maybe the fact that Rip Torn has such an HBO connection to because of his work on the Larry Sanders show maybe that's a reason why as well and maybe Bill Hader is extremely influenced by Larry Sanders in some way so that this is all pure speculation on my part so I I, I can't necessarily speak to that okay yeah that's fine but it also I love the little touch of being like, you know, don't blow your dick off with this. Yes, that sounds like something he'd say, but it makes you wonder, is there some sort of backstory with him and Gene Cousineau where he would uh, feel the need to to write that? I have to say that if Rip Torn was alive, you would probably see him in this season because there is some incredible character actor casting in this season that we're going to be getting to. Great music, uh, too. I want to I call out the composer right here in the first episode. Uh, there, there is some great work being done. Very ominous music as Cousineau says goodbye to his son and his grandson. Uh, we get our one and only scene in the theater where the acting class takes place uh, as Barry goes to visit him. Barry seemingly wants to help Gene out, but Gene says, my career is shit, Barry. You know that. Uh, Gene is clear, clearly pissed. Barry talks about what, uh, or I'm sorry, Gene talks about what Ken Goulet whispered into his ear as Gene is about to try to kill Barry. The gun literally falls apart, which, boy, does that seem like a metaphor. The look on Barry's face as he says, I'm sorry. Uh, the gun falling apart with Gene, uh, that, that feels... I feel like there's a connection there. Well, there's a connection, but it also is a harbinger for like another different side story about just amateur people handling guns in situations to try to take out Barry and it going poorly. But yeah, again, I really like that they get this whole Gene confronting Barry thing out of the way early. It's not looming over the season. I'm sure there's a way they could have done that, but there is part of me that appreciates let's rip the Band-Aid off, get this here, and we can then tell the story about that for the rest of the series instead of it having to be this big, like, when are they going to do it? So I like that choice as well. And the scene was really well done. Like, I think the moments where like Barry takes, you know, what was Gene says something like, and he, and he gulps and things like that is, is so well done. And his Bill Hader just has really, a really expressive face. Um, and it, and it helps add punch to the things that Gene tells him as he's revealing what information he knows. So we go back to the desert. Barry points the gun on uh, Gene's head. We see another bullet hole, just as we did with Sally. And boy, did I think Gene was dead. Like 100% because they set it up with Sally as being fake. And I was like, oh my God, they're really doing this, aren't they? But Totally. Same. Gene is alive. Uh, He says that Barry can be forgiven. Barry echoes what Hank said earlier. Says forgiveness has to be earned. Cousineau says to earn it, probably because he doesn't want to die. Barry says he knows how to make it up to him, and his face lights up. But then he tells he tells Gene to get back into the trunk, which a very funny a funny ending to what was a pretty dark scene. It's pretty interesting how how uh, Gene's perspective and forgiveness level changes when the barrel of the gun is pointed at his head, and with and not vice versa, huh? A very interesting way, uh, a very good way to end episode two, because you're wondering what is that thing that Barry's going to do to get forgiveness? Uh, at the beginning, we see Barry at a uh, kind of a random fast food place. Uh, what if he was at Los Pollos Hermanos, Kevin? What if he was there? I'm telling you, there. I feel like there's plenty of opportunities to do a crossover between these two universes. Well, we'll we'll get to uh, a New Mexico connection with uh, with Hank and Cristobal in a moment. But uh, Barry's getting fast food. He gives Gene the food in the trunk, 
Plus, Kevin, he's very polite. He gives Gene his kink back. Yes, very, very polite to do that. Uh, I love that this uh, that Gene in the um, in the trunk, the sandwiches. We see the bag later. Uh, this is just some great, great humor because uh, the idea that Gene is talking about like being polite, staying in the trunk, eating the sandwiches, cleaning up after himself. It's just it's really, really funny stuff. Uh, so we get Sally talking about the writing process. And I feel like this might be a little bit meta in a way. It seems like this might be a metaphor for Barry's writing process. They talk about the balance between uh, using humor and having scenes that are a little bit more serious. So this uh, this is just a very interesting uh, scene in terms of talking about how writing is actually done on, on shows like this. So we get Barry yelling at Sally. It's probably the worst thing we've ever seen him do specifically to Sally in terms of kind of yelling at her and just being really, really brutal. Uh, the assistant is just, it almost feels like the assistant has seen this before and just completely leaves the room, uh, leaving Katie to awkwardly watch this confrontation. Um, so I, de- I definitely want to take a minute and just talk about how awful this scene is. It's wildly uncomfortable. And Sally's going to have a lot of moments in this season where another man is right in her face and it's very uncomfortable to watch. But yeah, this is, it's horrible. And it what really sucks is later they're on the scene and when Katie brings it up to somebody and they're like, well, did he hit her? Did he threaten her? Did he do this? And it's like, no, he didn't do all three of those things. Not to mention he doesn't work there. But it's like, this is just as traumatic and bad as if he, you know, well, not as bad. I, I don't know how to phrase it, but just because he didn't strike her, threaten her or throw anything doesn't mean what he did was OK. But that's how I think it's either perceived or just, well, we we can't do anything unless one of those three things happens. And obviously it doesn't sit well with Katie, nor should it. So then uh, we get Hank and Cristobal sending him a beat. Uh, Cristobal tries to buy some lemonade and a bunch of cars come up. Funniest moment is when they can't open the door. But ultimately we get the Bolivian's boss, Fernando, the head of the family is here and they are here to take out some of the Chechnians. And, Uh, This is going to be an important storyline moving forward. And again, it's kind of connected to the drugs. So I think that's part of the reason that I had uh, some difficulties with it. But great casting of Fernando, I would say. And we do get a later scene with Cristobal hanging out with the Bolivians. They are kind of uh, preparing uh, for what they are going to do. Uh, The Bolivians go into the garden that we've seen before. Uh, They clearly want to shoot a bunch of the Russians And one of the things that I love about Barry and I appreciate about Bill Hader as a director and Alec Berg when he directs as well is just the way that for some violent scenes, uh, they will stay very, very wide. We know that Barry loves to use close-ups, but I think for more, I would say, impersonal scenes of violence, they they like to go wide. And this is definitely an example of that. Uh, But there are no Russians at the Garden because they are on a tour bus and uh, and Jurassic Park is mentioned. Kevin, I just want Noho Hank and his associates to do a podcast giving their thoughts on Jurassic Park Dominion. <laughs> that would be wonderful. And I love that that's how, obviously, Cristobal gives Hank the heads up and they get to leave before the, the hit happens, which obviously makes the Bolivians a little suspicious. Love that they also have the Chechen version of Toto's Africa playing in a couple different scenes, I think including this one. And like, yeah, the, the wide shot's great. And I like that they use it from the, the back perspective too in a later episode when it's an actually a, a more violent hit. And also little like things where it's like this big hit's about to happen, but the boss can't help but marvel at the amount of cup holders in their rental car. 
good juxtaposition there. And I like that that's, and I think it's in the next episode, Hank mentions it's an expired Groupon that would got them to go on that tour when the hit happens. So Cristobal and, and Hank, again, the star-crossed lovers here, helping each other out the best they can. And how long can we keep this up for without anyone getting suspicious? All very good stuff. And it does, they do a really good job of raising the tension. For sure. And to the point where Cristobal tells Hank to run away and basically get away from Fernando and these uh, these elite soldiers. I love that they keep calling them elite. That's pretty funny. Um, and they essentially break up here. Uh, meanwhile, Barry is trying to repair things with Gene. Going to Allison Jones, we get another cameo from the great Allison Jones. Allison Jones calls Gene Cousineau a fucking asshole, but does offer Barry an audition. At that audition, Barry talks about how much he loves Mr. Cousineau and as as they prepare. And Barry says that he can make a big pharma guy likable. And uh, again, more meta commentary on who Barry is and the way that Bill Hader can make anybody uh, very, very likable when he actually goes into the audition. It's uh, it's it's very interesting because he talks about uh, Gene saving his life. And I love the juxtaposition of, on the one hand, we know that Barry is an asshole and basically irredeemable at this point. But you could totally see a scenario where casting agents, directors, creatives, variety, the trades, they'd be like, oh, what a great story. This this awful, awful person is redeeming himself by by saving veterans. This is something that I could totally see happen. It feels very plausible. A hundred percent. That's that's one thing I loved about this season is I think that hook of Barry telling this story about how Gene Cousineau saved more or less saved the life of this army veteran being that hook that story that gets passed around hollywood and makes people who once who totally wrote off gene kusno as an asshole take pause think about him maybe a little differently and be willing to give him that second chance it's something i didn't see coming and i think is so brilliant and feels so real like what's what would actually be something to make people change their mind that Gene Kusno is a change man rather than him just telling people that he's a change man or what someone else telling this story about him saving his life. A former vet is the perfect thing to do that. And I love that. That's the hook to get Gene back into the industry. I thought that was so well done. And it's something they can continue to explore in season four as well, because of course, Barry with what happens to him, it'll be interesting to see what the follow-up is with that situation. So things are not going well for Sally. There is another show that is very close to hers that is called Pam with an exclamation point. Like as, as performative as Sally is like, she's there is some sincerity involved right. and Pam feels very just like, this is going to be like the, the brand X version of whatever Sally is trying to do. Right. Um, it's almost like the movie equivalent to like ants and bugs life. Armageddon and whatever the other one that came out that I can't remember right now. How dare you forget the movie Deep Impact? <clears throat> How can I even remember Deep Impact? Yeah. So it again, I think it's just like this. You have all these brain brains going, writers rooms going like it's just a matter of like something's going to hit that feels identical or very similar to what show is coming out at the same time. So, yes, that that does feel very grounded in reality and the whole like, well, we got to. We got to move the show up and the premiere up to to beat it to the punch kind of thing is definitely, to me, feels very realistic, like something that would happen in, in Hollywood. 
So Sally has had a very, very bad day and just wants to console herself with her boyfriend. Uh, she sets up spaghetti, a beer, notably Budweiser, and a donut, again, with the pastries, um, as well as a brand new controller. Uh, Sally is the one that actually apologizes to Barry for what happened earlier, but Barry is a oh. little bit busy because Jean has escaped the trunk and run away. Uh, there's something very important that we need to address. So Jean runs by a house, and there is a couple that is very clearly breaking up. We see just a million dogs, like dog after dog after dog after dog. And I love that we see all of these dogs. And the reason that they are breaking up is one of the people in the couple says, you have too many dogs. Kevin, is there such a thing as too many dogs? Yes, this person has too many dogs. Absolutely. I, I'll say, is there such a thing as too many dogs? As an owner, yes. In general, nah, maybe not. But yeah, the 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 shift of like, oh, this is this is funny that Gene is being chased by so many dogs as he's escaping Barry, and then you have this cutscene where it explains that she's done with too many dogs is absolutely hilarious. Backing up one second to the the Sally scene where she's setting up and apologizes to Barry, there is what I think is great is they show in the show itself uh, when they're filming a scene for Joplin where she's talking to her daughter and the daughter says something to her like, you're staying in this bad relationship for the apology. And then she comes home and says, sorry to Barry. And it sounds like she's saying it in the hopes of getting the apology from Barry. Not that she's really sorry and then doesn't get it was chef's kiss. Um, and it, it also like makes you kind of cringe a little bit because you have to imagine that's the case for a lot of these relationships where the person who wasn't at fault for one down says they're sorry to the other person. So it's a little uncomfortable in that way, too. The way it all ties together, I thought, was really well done. For sure. And Barry is clearly trying to repair his relationship with Gene. I think he thinks that his relationship with Sally is on really solid footing. And now he's just trying to kind of massage what's going on with uh, with Gene. But Gene is just trying to run away. He asks a random server for help, and he exp explains the situation by asking if they can, if she can call him an internet taxi. Uh, we get a car smashing into Barry's. Gene smartly runs away. He gets home. Barry is sitting right next to his grandson. This, uh, this kind of stretches credulity a little bit because Barry probably would have to stay. I mean, I guess he does it in a later scene. What is up with Barry just abandoning his car? Because he does it many times this season. <laughs> Cars are just things to bury. You move on to the next vehicle. I mean, Again, like, st like it's like this time it's smashed. Another one, he has a person go through it. Yeah, that's true. And then he takes their bike and he just continues singing a song with the beignets intact. You're right. It does. It does sort of spread it. But I think you see that Barry has this stealthness, which I think comes from his background and stuff, too. And it is. Like the fact that he that Gene comes home and he's just like, oh, my God, how he's here and how is that even possible? Yeah, you kind of have to bend reality a little bit to get there, but it makes a very impactful ending for the episode. What if at the end of episode eight, they're like, you're under arrest, but it's not for pointing a gun. It's for running away from two car accidents. <laughs> that would be great. You're under arrest no. for two car accidents. What? <laughs> the, the, the USPS man turned him in. Oh, my God. How great would that be? The first shot is just the USPS man just talking about what Barry did. Right. You see, like, his perspective. Like, what does he do next? He walks away and calls the the plates into the to the police or something. How did Barry die? P post office worker. 
There you go. He went uh, postal. Anyway, Barry makes Gene say he loves him twice. This scene is uh, it's pretty disturbing, but we do get a, we get more close-ups, which especially between Barry and Gene, it just feels like these are these are so important to their characters. And uh, Barry and Gene are not in a good place, and this is only going to continue in our next episode. Yeah. Oh God, the the coldness between them is like when he makes him say he loves him twice and it's so close on their faces. Oh my God. It is so awkward and uncomfortable. So in the next episode, Gene is told that he is actually going to get a line, but we find out more of what a piece of shit Gene is because he threw some tea in the showrunner's face when they, when, uh, when the showrunner was a production assistant on the television show murder, she wrote, I I love that Barry asks Gene, what do you say? As if, as if he's a parent to a child. That's a, that was pretty amusing to me. It was, and it's a great, di- again, shows the dynamic between the two of them. Uh, so we get Barry wanting to run lines a little bit later. Uh, so we get Barry wanting to run lines with Gene later on. But Gene just wants to know if Janice Moss suffered before she died. So again, now we're really, we're kind of getting to brass tacks here. Because clearly Barry just wants to get over this. He wants to be forgiven. But Gene really wants to get into it now because Gene knows that basically he's stuck with Barry for the foreseeable future. So now... He wants to get some answers, and eventually, I, I love the realization that Gene has when he realizes that Barry's monologue was completely true when they very first met. So a lot of what happened in season one is kind of coming back into play here, and I always love when shows do that because it feels so, it makes the show feel connected in a way, and just the way that this this all pays off is tremendous as eventually they get onto the set of of the show. Kevin, did you catch the name? So Mark Paul Gossler is playing the lawyer on this fake show. Did you catch his name? The name of the character? The name of the character, yes. No, I did not. His name is Hugh Manity. Oh, boy. So this is apparently, this is a very popular show. I, I can't say this for sure, but this feels like a show that would be on CBS. Oh, a million percent, yes. Cousineau goes off script, slaps Barry during the scene together, strips off his coat, and completely runs away. And uh, Barry is left looking very shocked and dismayed. And we'll kind of get we'll get to the kind of the payoff of where this is going to take Barry next. But from Gene's perspective, like this feels like a huge moment for him, just in terms of you know he is stuck with Barry, but he is uh, he is showing a lot of agency and is clearly trying to to better himself. And this is kind of the beginning of that. Yeah. I think he's that. And I think he's doing his best to give himself as much agency as he can in a situation. He has little control over the Sally stuff is just so hilarious that we're going to, we're going to cover that last, but we get Fuchs herding goats and he is apparently in love with this woman that is, that is uh, in the cabin. This is, this is so funny. Like this presents the alternative of what Fuchs's life would look like. Again, like so many characters on the show, he has an out. He has a way of actually becoming a better person, and he just keeps getting dragged back. It's like it's Al Pacino in The Godfather Part 3 all over again. Hank calls him. Fuchs is reluctant to come back. He looks very angry about what's going on. It's just, it's really, really funny stuff. And we do get an incredible scene. Just, I, I think phone scenes can be really tough. Barry and Fuchs, for one of the few times this season, they don't really have a lot of interaction. 
And in fact, this might be, I think this, this is their only conversation they have this season. Fuchs apologizes to Barry uh, for what happened. Barry basically says no in response. Uh, I love that Fuchs is saying, uh, I'm, I'm in a hospital, uh, but Barry very clearly hears the goats in the background. And uh, Barry decides to hang up on him, is very disrespectful. And uh, this kind of feels like a stupid move. If Barry gives, I feel like if Barry gives Fuchs anything in this scene, then Fuchs is just going to continue on, be in love, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it, maybe eventually it was always going to happen, but this specifically feels like a, a kind of a point of no return for their relationship because Fuchs just feels so disrespectful. Very disrespected, and I think it's what Hank tells him later that really sets him over the edge, like, oh, he's fine without you. He's over it. Hank, and they're talking about blowing uh, Bolivians, and they they acquired this bomb. Um, and they and Hank is like, okay, this is a job for Barry. And Barry is first is like, no, I'm not going to do it. But then after what happens with Gene, he's like, you know what? I'm in. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I forgot this was the same episode. And what's with these women falling in love with Fuchs there, these much younger sexier women are they just tired of not seeing any male humans and that's all they got i think steven root is like look if i'm gonna be on this show and you're gonna put me in scenes with goats then the least you can do is also have beautiful women on the show as well if we can get someone to photoshop the men who stare at goats with fuchs in there that would be wonderful <laughs> but yeah i fuchs is great in these episodes uh St- steven root rules that's that's all that's that's all you can say all right we have to talk about the funniest aspect of the show as Sally is doing the media rounds for her upcoming show, Joplin. And the way the Bill Hader kinds of it kind of explains it is like they really like in an ideal world, this would just be a press conference, right? You would have everybody there just asking whatever banal, stupid questions they want to ask. But the way that these media days are run, they can be very, very long. And it's because these these producers and these networks, they want, quote unquote, exclusives. Now, obviously, because of Zoom and because of the pandemic, this has changed a little bit. But the principle is the same. It's it's a cattle call. You get these actors that are sitting down for these 10 minute interviews and the questions are literally as dumb as you see here. This is not an exaggeration. Bill Hader specifically mentioned that when he was doing the media rounds for either Trainwreck or It Part Two, they asked him who Batman should be. So this is based off of the based off of reality. The name of this episode is Ben Mendelsohn, and when Sally is asked who should play Spider Man, she says Ben Mendelsohn, and that's what a what a great pull, what a great just random name to pull out. Right, and that's when you're just like, all right, uh, I'm in this hot seat. I've been doing these all day. I'm under hot lights. Uh, this guy, I guess. Like, first name that kind of comes to your head. And I and she does not seem like someone who's totally engaged in uh, Marvel movies and stuff, which is fine. So I think that's a great answer for her to give. But yeah, that, that really seems like a horrible situation. Because I see those all the time where you just see, like, you know, a Bill Hader or a Dwayne Johnson or, or you know, Olivia Wilde, which is like, same outfit, same background, a million different reporters, and it's like basically the same questions over and over again. And God bless him, you got to put on the smile and be as likable as you can to make people come see your movie or project or whatever it is. But that has to be one of the one of the worst parts of the job. It's again, it's it's 
something that just comes with the territory. You got to do it, but it has to be awful to just be in those those rooms all day. And I think the reality of just like, oh, they're not even they have their questions. They're not even listening to your answers. And then they just move you on to the next person before you even realize it's over. So in, in the midst of a break, uh, Sally and, and Katie come together. I love that Katie says that Harry Styles should be the new Spider-Man. Kevin, spoilers for the Eternals. Too bad he is already in the MCU. So I read that in your notes and I was like, he is. And I looked it up. No memory of that at all. Yeah, I, I had to have it explained to me. Like, I watched the Eternals in that post credit scene. I was like, I, I, I don't know who that is. I was like, okay. That's Pat Oswald's voice. I know that voice very well. And I was like, I don't know who that is. And clearly I'm an idiot because Harry Styles is very popular. And uh, this is still a funny joke. Be- knowing that he is in the MCU makes it funnier, I think. Yeah, I think it's okay to not know. We're, we're, too, we're, not, we're too old for, for Harry Styles in One Direction. We missed it. It's not we're for so, us. And that's we're so fine. old. We're so old. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, everybody. Seems, seems like a, a, a very nice gentleman based on what I've seen. But yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to be great in the MCU, and people are there are probably going to be new audience members coming to Marvel movies because of him. So I get the casting. If we can keep him and Patton Oswalt together, since they're both in that end moment in Eternals, that would also be ideal for me. Yes, we also get Natalie giving Katie advice. Katie does not feel comfortable around Barry. Natalie provides some context on Barry, and it's pretty messed up that she doesn't realize how bad Barry actually is. So, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. Katie is in an awkward position. Uh, We get her in a scene by herself. The reporter brings up Sally's relationship, and Katie responds by it being very healthy. Katie is uh, is very displeased with their relationship, and is clearly going through something. And I I think what starts out as being kind of funny kind of ends up being, like, something very serious. And, And you get the impression that Katie really wants to, to have a conversation with Sally about her relationship with Barry. And it's, it go, I think this goes to show the struggle that a lot of entertainers have. And this is in all aspects of entertainment is what is my place to say something? Is it okay for me to say something? And will saying something cost me my job. And if it costs me my job, is that fair that I would lose my job over something that I'm not directly connected into? And then you really have to think about, is this something even worth bringing up or what is my role in this um especially because she's so much younger than sally she doesn't really know the dynamics between them all she knows is what she saw the one day in the office and what other people tell her and know it's not good but it makes her uncomfortable and i have to imagine it's made her a mess and it probably has affected her personally to see somebody who to her is a mentor a lead in the show someone who's given her her big break to go through this and I have to imagine for a lot of people in her shoes, it's this it's this mental game of what do I say? When do I say it? And do I even need to say something? And should I even need to say something? Um, so I really feel for her character there. And I'm glad she takes action in episode four. Uh, we get kind of a payoff to the Fuchs, kind of the last scene. Anna, who is the young woman that has fallen in love with Mr. Fuchs. Uh, Anna says vengeance is like drinking poison. Boy, oh boy, that's that that really that really pays off well. Uh, Fuchs wants Barry's dead. Anna tells Fuchs this incredible morality story, and Fuchs absolutely misses the point. A great oh ending my God. to the episode. Oh my god, I laughed so hard 
for listening to that. He's listening to this metaphor and he's like, how did this happen? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, it's not real. He's like, it could be. And you're like, no, it couldn't. What are you talking about? It's great. I loved the ending to this episode. Uh, so the beginning of episode four, which is called All the Sauces, we get Annabeth Gish. Uh, she is talking uh, with her husband on the phone. Uh, back in the hotel, we see an unbearded Barry, clearly signifying this as a flashback. Barry shoots the man dead in the hotel room, and we see the, that it's years later. Uh, it's very dark. Uh, the wife looks very depressed. A knock on the door. Kenneth Goulet is back in the United States. To open the episode, uh, we get Goulet telling the wife and her son about Barry. And one of the things I mentioned that uh, Fuchs slash Kenneth Goulet uh, is an Ohio State fan. He points out to the son that his son had a chance to go to Michigan on a full ride. This is significant because Ohio State and Michigan have a huge rivalry in college football. So a very interesting callback. I don't know if this was done on purpose, but I feel like for a show like this, very clearly something that is done on purpose. So um, not necessarily something that has something directly to do, but I think it is important that basically um, Fuchs wants Barry dead and he is going to go to every measure uh, to try to do it. Yeah. This is him going into people's lives who he knows have, who are who are people who are living someone in their lives has been lost at the expense of Barry's assassinations. And he's giving them this information, hoping that somebody who is not him will take matters in their own hands and kill him for him. This scene was a little strange just because I, I didn't really understand what was Barry when Barry killed the person's husband in the in the hotel. Was this a, a hit for somebody like was it just a job? I didn't really make a connection as to what this was or who had put him on this hit necessarily. I would definitely, definitely agree with that. Also good to see Annabeth Gish. Maybe we can talk about her a little bit later, but she's great. Yeah. From Halt and Catch Fire. That's what we talked about her on. Speaking of great actors though, Kevin, we get Fred Melman as Tom, who is Gene's agent. And God, Fred Melman is so good. Like he is he, he anything rocks. he is. I mean, in this episode specifically, the running gag about everything that Gene has been called over the years, the fact that it ends one scene and it picks up in another scene and clearly has been going on for a while, just a plus stuff. And the fact that he remembers all of it so clearly. And I love that he's saying, he's like, by the way, not, not my words. These are other people's words. It's, it's, it's a delight. He's fantastic in this show and absolutely would be the person who would keep uh, Gene Cousineau as, uh, his uh, as one of his clients for all these many years. So because the because Gene slapped Barry, Gene decides he has to run away. So he goes to what is what amounts to a stall that, store that looks like a Walmart, and he is getting luggage and all kinds of things to escape. And he runs into Joe Montaigne. Joe Montaigne is playing himself. What threw me off, Kevin, is that Joe Montaigne had a beautiful white mane of hair. Just, I mean. Look, gray hair sucks, but if you can have a mane like that, holy shit. Yeah, like I like I've always said I would I would rather go gray or white than go bald, for sure. And Joe Montaigne looks great for his age. He looks he looks awesome. Love seeing him in here. I can't help but just hear like 
I just hear Fat Tony in his voice every time he talks because it's not that far off from the way he talks. All and in the next episode, they even make reference to his audition for Fat Tony, which I appreciate it. They sure do. But I also like here that the connection you, you talk about how Joe Montana had a restraining order against him and the vet story really uh, inspired him to uh, see the change and, and Gene and invite him over to his house again. I thought that was a really good through line. But I also think it's interesting that it didn't, it didn't change his course, Gene's course right away. He's still grabbing the luggage, buying it and and planning to leave L.A., even though his um, his agent is right behind him being to explain to him how big a deal this is. Uh, so, this, yeah, just it, a great scene. The line is great. This is the industry wide amnesia we've been waiting for. Boy, is that that feels so appropriate. Funny. And it goes through. It, it's going to take an industry wide amnesia for people to, to for you to get back into the game. <laughs> oh, it's so, so good. Uh, Joe Montaigne really does do work with veterans. So I'm glad that they were able to incorporate that. What a what a great casting decision and the fact that this is real. It just it makes it feel all the more authentic. And it it helps build up the Gene character as well, because, again, we are seeing that Gene is trying to uh, better himself. And this is going to be kind of once he actually gets the money and Barry is no longer threatening him, like this is going to be an important part of the second half of the season. Totally. Yeah, it's it's just really good stuff all around. And I'm glad it wasn't the only time we got to see Joe Montana. All right, Kevin, we, we need to talk about the detonator app because of all the jokes that Barry has done, this has to be top five, right? It, it's it's easily top three, maybe top one, depending on the day. Hank says Barry has to burn all of the Bolivians up with a bomb. There is a detonator app because, of course, there's a detonator app. There's an app for everything. Hank clearly does not value his personal security in this in this scene. For somebody who's a criminal, you would expect somebody to be, like, super private. He is absolutely – he is just absolutely not. He just checks all the boxes. He'll take the emails, the text messages – the special offers. I want Hank doesn't even strike me as the kind of guy that has a spam email, does he? Oh God, no. Or he probably re- replies to the spam emails. Oh my God, he totally would. I love that the bomb is at the edge of the parking lot. Like they've clearly put it very far away, just, just in, in case. case it blows. Just in case. Barry is very distracted. He is unable to attend Sally's opening. We will get to that and kind of what that the significance of that. Uh, but Barry eventually is able to get to the house, but the, the detonator app won't go off, Kevin. And uh, it, it feels like technology is great, but man, when it doesn't work. And we have Barry interacting with an operator. The uh, the operator is nonplussed about the situation, and she's just, she's just trying to be a good customer service representative. I love the, uh, the, the name on the account is Berman Goes Boom, or Berkman Goes Boom. Again, at the beginning of season four, when they talk about the arrest, this could be, this could be plausibly one of the reasons why he's arrested, right? Like, it's perfect that Hank used his name, his surname in the in the account name, where it's like, wouldn't you want to put the most inconspicuous name possible? I mean, not logically, Hank. you would not 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 Hank. Hank is all he is all surface. There is there is no subtlety to who he is as a person. And I think that's represented. That's been pretty consistent over the three seasons that there is absolutely nothing subtle about Hank is. And I think that's part of why we love him as a character. Bomb eventually does go off. And uh, thankfully, (laughs) Cristobal escapes. 
and uh, and Barry is able to help get him back to Hank. And we see that I think Barry realizes just how deep that relationship is. But I do think it's worth pointing out that Fernando says to Cristobal before the bomb goes off that his daughter uh, has figured out about the relationship with Hank. And Fernando makes some threats and even suggests Cristobal shoot Noho Hank in the head. And Cristobal tells Fernando he'll have to be killed. So clearly there's a lot of tension. And we know that there is a life situation that is also going to need to be addressed in future episodes. So that's that's kind of that storyline. Anything else before we get to kind of the Sally part of it, which is pretty pivotal? Well, I what, what's really great to me is that Barry sees in episode one, the Hank Cristobal relationship, sees Cristobal and the fact that he's b- missing Sally's big premiere to get this job, but then understands the value of this relationship and that Hank lets him know how badly he messed up by framing him for the monastery shooting and stuff. I think it's like, when Barry sees him and brings him to Hank, it's sort of in a way his olive branch. It's to let him know he's safe. It's to getting him to shelter and also his way of maybe saying he's sorry for all of that and hoping to mend the relationship with him and Hank, even if it's at the expense of his own relationship. Absolutely. So let's talk about Sally and Barry's relationship. It is a huge day for Sally as it is the premiere of her show. Uh, Sally is working on her speech and is trying not to be superficial, but really, Kevin, she just simply cannot help herself. And eventually she ends up in an elevator with Natalie. Not the first time they end up in an elevator. First, uh, when they're on the way, Natalie says the the on fuego has been lifted, which is is pretty hilarious. Amazing. The reality is it's an embargo, a review embargo, which is pretty common for TV and for movies. Uh, The reviews are very good, and I don't know that TV on Rotten Tomatoes has as much significance as movies. And again, you can debate the overall significance of Rotten Tomatoes, but I love that Sally is so excited over getting a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, while Pam has a 27%. That's pretty funny. So I think it's very funny, too, because Sally, like, dismisses it about, like, oh, what the critic, I don't do this for the critics. If they could do what I did, you know, if if they actually could knew what they were talking about, they'd be doing what I'm doing. And that she brushes it off and then it hits her while she's on stage. And then she gets so excited and she mentioned she had a bad review. So that explains why she brushes them off. Um, But, yeah, that's that to me is the embargo thing lifting and caring about that kind of stuff speaks, I think to some, some level of reality. You're right. I don't know about Rotten Tomatoes on television versus movies or whatever. I am mostly familiar with embargo, especially with video games uh, and stuff too. Like either the, like the day before or the morning of that's when they usually come out. Um, And it's always interesting to, to see people change their minds one way or the other, or, you know, their excitement level change and stuff like that. And seeing her give that speech was really was was great. Uh, I thought her acting was fantastic as she talked about that speech. I almost forgot to thank God was was great. And then she gets played off at her own premiere. Really wonderful stuff. And the other thing I liked with the assistant is when she's talking about like, oh, my gosh, can you believe we went from acting class together? And now we're taking a limo to your premiere. And then Sally does not let her get into limo. Yeah, more shabby treatment of Natalie, which, boy, is that going to – that's going to come back to bite her. 
So Sally does indeed give a, a, a very interesting speech. And one of the things that Bill Hader was talking about when it came to the show is they apparently had to do a couple weeks of reshoots. And I guess Sally's speech was a big thing that was reshot because I guess the content of her speech was more like a TED talk. And I guess they, they went back in and made it a little bit more emotionally sincere or as sincere as, uh, as Sally can be. I thought this was a, a very interesting moment for Sally. She talks about the positive reviews. Uh, she begins crying. She says she loves Barry, even though he's not there. So it's, it's this, again, this might be, I, I mentioned it might have been a previous episode, but this truly might be the best moment. And this might be the top of, of Sally's career right here. But things very quickly kind of go downhill as Katie tells Sally that, that Barry is a violent and bad person. And Sally, especially him not being there, certainly helps. But the fact that Sally kind of has this realization that, oh my God, like this is this is absolutely happening again. And then she breaks up with him in a in just out of nowhere, seemingly. Like it's not like a long conversation. It's just she says, We're done. You need to go to the apartment. We, I'm gonna stay somewhere else. You need to get your shit and get get out, basically. And it's it's a very powerful moment. And as as shitty as Sally can be, I think with what she had to go through with the media day. And a lot of the stuff in this episode, this is, I, I think Sally comes across very sympathetic in these two episodes. Totally. And it's one of those instances where, like, she can be a monster as a boss or to her sister or whatever, but that doesn't make the shabbiness she's going through in her own relationship any less valid or untrue. And yeah, I love that that speech comes at the time it does. And I love that she breaks up with Barry after kind of realizing it. And I think for a lot of people, it takes that outside perspective to come to you to realize what you're not seeing when you're when you're in in things. And I and I really like the the conversation she has with him at the end of the episode. And a lot of that with a lot of the stuff that Sally goes through in this episode makes this one of my favorite episodes of the season altogether. Uh, we also get the mom and son at the uh, at the gun shop. I think we'll take the Glock and the gun guy says sweet, which is uh, which is a pretty funny way to end the episode. After this very intense scene, we go back to them. It's it's pretty good. It's weird. I don't. I I feel like guns uh, maybe shouldn't be that easy to purchase. Wait a minute. You're telling me the guns. Why why would you say that, Kevin? In America, especially. I don't know if I agree with this. But wow. Okay. He says as he as he grows a beard and uh, puts a MAGA flag on his uh, front porch. Oh, boy. Uh, no, never. Anyway, episode five is called Crazy Time Shit Show, which feels like it would be the name of a succession episode more so than uh, than a Barry episode. But uh, the person who gets to say the name of the episode just Again, chef's kiss. Perfect. Um, no, no. Crushes it. So we go back to when Barry was a soldier in Afghanistan. The man whose life he saved is not only alive, but in the FBI special, special agent Albert Nguyen. And it's uh, it's what a great character. Like in basically in this episode, in the next episode, we get introduced to like two of my favorite characters of season three. Just some great casting. Like, this season, just the casting has been incredible. The character actors, uh, the Fred Melmans, the Joe Montañas, and even down the line. Just incredible new characters 
throughout the season. Yeah, I was I would thought it rocked that he was in this this season. I thought it was a really interesting wrinkle. It's like, all right, we need we need somebody competent in this police department. And this makes Oh this... my god, is he competent? It's so it's so funny. Like his scenes with the police officers. Amazing. Oh my god, it's I, I could watch a show just about that. Okay. I know I'm jumping ahead a few episodes, but I love that the lead police officer when he when Albert storms out with the gun, he's like, what's like it's like, where's a has anyone seen Agent One? He's like, I don't know. Last we saw him, he was storming off with a gun. Probably just going to get something to eat or something like that. <laughs> so wait, died, so, died laughing. I mean, of course, because that is the relationship that we have with guns, right? I feel like that is clearly clearly a metaphor. Oh, for 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 what for whatever is going on, yes, Albert Nguyen is a fantastic character. We're we're going to talk so much more about him, but it's premiere day for Joplin, Kevin, on the streaming service. Natalie is uh, it's premiere day for Joplin. Why the fuck is no one noticing you? Which is absolutely hilarious, given the glut of streaming shows. Like, how is it? How do you become famous these days? Right, and the and the fact that she's on the front of the IMDb page and it turns over while they're sitting in the coffee shop. It's great. yes, and the the they're replaced by a show called The New Medusas, which is going to become important later. We also get Barry back with his old roommates, and there is a recording studio that has a soundproof room. Kevin, uh, Chekhov's recording studio. Yes, it it sure is, and I'm so glad we got to see two of the acting students again. I completely understand them moving out of the acting studio for the season, but I was like, man, I'm going to miss some of these characters. So the fact that we got his old roommates who were also his classmates back in here, I really enjoyed. We get Fuchs continuing to try and get people to go after Barry. I didn't mention this in the previous episode, but one of the people that he talks to is Ryan's dad, George. Ryan is the person that Barry murdered in the pilot of this show. Fuchs goes and talks to him. Here he's talking. I call them a motorcycle gang. I don't know if gang is the right word. They may be actually professionals, but I, I call them a motorcycle gang. Would you would you say that's accurate? It's it's something where it's like they're not a motorcycle gang, but they're criminals or people involved in that world who happen to also be big like motocross riders. But motorcycle gang, I think, is appropriate as like a as a description of what they are, but I don't, but I think the mental image people might have is a little different from what they are in reality, but it, it works. I think. All right, Kevin, we have to talk about the algorithm meeting because this might be one of my favorite scenes in the entire run of the show. Fuck um, me. I thought I was going to be out of demo talk and fucking whatever clusters without of the wrestling sphere of Twitter. And then I have to watch this and hear it all over again. And it was a was it a little nauseating? Yes, but it was supposed to be nauseating. So apparently Bill Hader had somebody from SNL who had a show on Netflix. He did not say who it was that apparently this is not like literally his show was on the front page in the morning. And then 12 hours later, it really was off the front page and it was hard to search. Like this is a little bit exaggerated, but it is not as exaggerated as you think. And the other reason it's not exaggerated, Kevin Ford, do you remember CNN Plus? I sure don't. CNN Plus was CNN's attempt at a streaming service that lasted a whole 13 days. So it would have been really shocking had I di- had I remembered it. <laughs> it would have been very surprising. It would have even been more surprising if you had subscribed to it. <laughs> because nobody was. 
Anyway, the show is canceled because of the algorithm. I I absolutely love that Sally mentions the fact that Pam has a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's just, again, tremendous stuff. The executive says nobody knows anything but the algorithm, which feels scarily accurate. We get Natalie later telling Sally how wonderful the show is and says she learned so much from being a part of it. Hug Sally. And Sally kind of no-sells it in a way and uh, kind of sets up the journey that Natalie is going to be going on in the next couple of episodes. But I, I just, I absolutely... It feels it feels too close to reality. I think that's what makes it funny. It feels just plausible enough. And it, and I mean, it shows the perfect dynamic between your streaming companies or channels versus the the creators of the shows themselves. They want to make this fulfilling, worthwhile piece of art where they're just they just care about subscriber numbers, viewers, all this other stuff. And it's like, how do we get those two to connect to each other? It's dark. It's a very dark way to perceive art in a way. It just goes to show you how the future of things is going to go and what the potential dystopia of television and, and movies and all that is going to look like. So I think we, we could talk about the Chechnyan and the Bolivian components next. And I think what makes this so what makes this so weird is that we've never really been introduced to Cristobal's wife, but this is our opportunity uh, to do that. And boy, is she more competent than Fernando was, that's for sure, is uh, she basically immediately calls out them for doing whatever they're doing. And there's a point when the Chechnians are meeting with the elders. They're basically standing by the garden. One of the Chechnians is played by the great Michael Ironside, another just unbelievable casting decision and as they are standing by the garden a bunch of cars drive up to the bolivians as the bolivians they lay waste to the Chechnyans who are there this time the police and the feds also roll up as well ironside gets to say the name of the episode uh as he refers to this of course as a crazy time shit show tremendous tremendous stuff and again, we see this action all in kind of a wide shot. I love the fact that the police and the Bolivians get there at the same time. It's uh, We also get another bomb exploding. It's just tremendous stuff. And I love that the Chechnyan throws the phone down at the end as if that's going to help him. And I love that it's because that the new Chechnyan boss thinks that they're incompetent. They go, I'm sorry, the new Bolivian boss thinks they're incompetent. They go to the Chechnyans. And it's because that the new agent with the FBI thinks that the police were incompetent because they only questioned Hank and nobody else that they also go back to the Chechnyans and they happen to arrive at the same time as the one Chechnyan is showing off to the people back home on his phone. Again, I like that it's this time a reverse wide shot from the phone that gets the picture of everything. And I love that's that's the delivery of the crazy time shit show. They seem a little unfazed at home, which is always, I think, part of the comedy of the show is that the understating of these big moments like this adds to the humor, but really good scene start to finish. Meanwhile, Hank and Cristobal are preparing for a trip to Santa Fe, Kevin. Hopefully they hopefully they don't go to Albuquerque because they uh, they may find some problems there. What do you think? I think they'd be okay. Maybe they'll just stay in Santa Santa Fe and they'll run into Ed Begley Jr. They are listening to Percy Jackson on audiobook, which I just tremendous detail. Lena and the other Bolivians come knocking I don't know. Did she just not see Hank in the closet or what? Like, it's really strange to me. Like, it just seems pretty obvious. And maybe it's because she's distracted because she cries when she finds a picture of Cristobal and Hank. 
basically Cristobal is uh, is kidnapped and Hank has to figure out what he's going to do next because he is clearly alone. There's almost no Technians at this point because a lot of them are dead. The Bolivians have captured his lover. So, yeah, not not good times for Hank. This is kind of a low point for him. No, but I think the the way the slits were in the closet, you could have missed it. And again, like you said, she sees the picture of them on the on the wall next to the closet and that's what gets her attention. So I bought it and, and Hank does his best to temper his breathing and things like that. So I thought it was done very well. The close-ups on Hank in the closet were also very well done too. So Barry in the previous episode had given Gene a ton of money and basically had peaced out and was like, I'm not going to threaten you anymore. Uh, Gene is again, kind of, kind of go on this redemption tour. And one of the things that he is going to do is buy a, a bigger house uh, for his son and grandson, which is a pretty nice gesture. Later on, he does, in fact, go to Joe Montaigne's house. And we are introduced to another great character, Annie Eisner, as played by Laura San Giacomo, who we talked about back in Mars Investigated, which you can find on the Real World feed. These two had a prior relationship. Annie Eisner, somebody else that does not, does not like Jean Cousineau, and uh, they even have it out a little bit at the uh, dinner table as Gene uh, is trying to apologize. Annie rightfully calls him on his bullshit, being like, you're just apologizing. You don't really mean this. This is bullshit, which absolutely right to do. I love uh, I, I loved this stuff with Gene and the fact that he's clearly trying to be better, but he uh, he also has a very, very long way before he could actually be better. I don't. I can't imagine this is actually Joe Montaigne's house, but again, great real estate. I love that she again, calls out Gene, like, you're you're saying sorry to make yourself feel better so you don't have to worry about it anymore. And I love that Gene gives this apology, and it's great, and, like, Joe Montaigne raises a glass, and then she says, like, you forgot about ruining my career, and Joe Montaigne's like, ah, fuck. <laughs> Such a good delivery. It's, it's really, really good stuff. Now we can end on talking about, what does it say about Barry that he is asking Hank and Cristobal for relationship advice? Well... <laughs> That's a good question. But again, he's going to the right people who have seemingly the healthiest relationship. Barry's clearly just lacking in self-awareness the whole way through. Uh, Hank tells him he has major rage issues, which, duh, and encourages him to be honest. And he encourages him to let, let Sally get to know him a little bit. So Barry responds by going out and getting art supplies. He even runs into the sun and they are making a plan of who is actually going to shoot Barry. Because that's kind of where we're at now. There's a bunch of people that are clearly uh, coming to try to kill Barry. And that's going to be something that plays out. We see Barry back in Sally's apartment. He has made a collage of who he is. Part of this collage is a picture of Michael Jordan. This A map of the state of Ohio. Did you notice anything else on this collage you want to make mention of? Uh, well, top left was Metallica, which goes back to him listening to them with the Unforgiven in episode one. So that was a nice touch. But... I saw MJ too. That's all I really noticed. Like I didn't pause and, and inspect it too much, but those that's what I noticed as well. So Barry, he's very proud of himself for this collage though. Yeah. What would, what would be on your collage, Kevin? Would it just be a, a bunch of Chikara stuff or what? Your In dog. 2022, probably not. Your dog definitely would be on there. It would just be your dog, wouldn't it? It, it would be the dog and then like smaller things around it. Like, Nintendo Switch, New Japan logo, but yeah, the uh, comp Marvel logo, maybe Top Gun Maverick now. And yeah, then the dog taking up most of it. Maybe, maybe the fiance makes the cut. We'll see. Yeah, I don't, maybe, hopefully she's not listening to this. <laughs> no, no way. 
<laughs> Never. Why? Why would you actually have somebody listen to this? God. Yeah. Why are you listening to this? Uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm sort of listening. Well, I, I mean, I mean the universal you, the listener. Why are you listening to this? Let us know on Twitter, I guess. Uh, one of us will read it eventually. Barry is. Oh man, this scene. Uh, so Sally comes in crying. She's just had a horrendous day. Her show's been canceled because of the algorithm. Barry talks about freaking the people in charge. Just the matter-of-factness. Again, lacking in self-awareness and not realizing that talking about taking pictures and making things smaller, just an utter, utter psychopath. Yeah, the, again, it's the way he says it and just act like this is a normal thing to say. Don't get advice from subreddits, people. Ever on anything. I want to know what subreddits is Barry going on. Do I want to know? No, it's it's like the the worst ones you can imagine. But I almost wonder if they're so bad you can't imagine them. Yeah. I, have, are they even on Reddit at this point? Or have they just been banned? I, I would like to think they're banned. I want to I want to think the better of the Internet, which is always a mistake. <laughs> Huge mistake. Anyway, Sally rightfully tells Barry to get out because she understands how messed up that he is acting. So... In this case, Sally, still very sympathetic. That is uh, that is going to change. But outside, the mom accidentally shoots her son in the stomach. Apparently, the effects people wanted to blow his head off, which I guess Ooh. that's the thing you could do. But that's that's really dark, man. That's That feels like a step too far. Even Bill Hader's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're drawing the line there. It would have been super gnarly looking. But again, I, I don't feel I feel like this is messed up enough. We don't, we don't need to just blow him up. Like, shooting him in the stomach, that gets the message across. We didn't need to murder him. It gets the message across, and honestly, like, if you had removed this whole sub story here, like, nothing would have changed about the season. So it feels like it would have been a lot of effects and stuff done for something that, like, kind of get why it's there, but it's just like, oh, it's another person that Barry has wronged that's getting back at him. But it's not as significant as all the other ones that happened seasons ago or with bigger characters, so... Nice to see Annabeth Gesh, but this is, again, something if you just removed all these scenes, like it really wouldn't have changed the dynamic of the show, I don't think. I almost wonder if they didn't have them more involved and if during rewrites or reshoots, if if their storyline was maybe subtracted a little bit. Possibly maybe there's some deleted scenes or something where there's a lot more stuff with them. Because it did feel very uninvolved in this in, in the rest of the show in general. Like, because, yes, the payoff is funny and all that. And like yeah. the, the scene at the end is good. But yeah, you could have removed this and it wouldn't have changed a thing. I mean, because the thing is, is that, I mean, these shows are tight like this. I think the longest episode was 33 minutes, which in the modern television landscape is absolutely remarkable at a time when Stranger Things is doing a two and a half hour season finale. Like this is this is really tight. And yeah, I could definitely see a scenario where things from this storyline in particular maybe got cut. Remarkable and commendable. Yeah, good for Bill Bill Hader and Alec Berg for being disciplined enough to just be like, you know what? 30 minutes, eight episodes, done. Yep, yep. More of that, please. Episode six. uh, So I'm not going to lie. I'm very conflicted because two of my favorite episodes of the series are in this final batch here. Episode six and episode eight. Episode six, I... I love episode six a lot, and it's for many different reasons, which I'll get into. Uh, We have Fuchs interacting with the motorcycle group, leading to this iconic line. What kind of a dick says no to a hot tub right there? Fuchs gets shot by one of them, and the motorcycle gang goes off. And Kevin, I remember you texting me, is Fuchs dead? Yeah, I was like, they just just shoot him off in this opening 
thing right here. Boy, would that have been ballsy, huh? It really would have, yes. But you know what? Like, it would have been kind of crazy for Barry to do that. But, like, we're at the penultimate season. Maybe, maybe it's like, okay, well, we can do this kind of shocking thing. And then we still have the dynamic with Barry and Sally, Barry and Gene, all this other stuff to play off of. So it wouldn't have shocked me completely. Or it would have shocked me in a good way, I should, sh- I, I should say. I don't know that this is the penultimate season. I think we might get a season five. Didn't they say season four was the final season? No, uh, because Bill Hader was asked how many seasons the show's going to go, and he said he didn't know. Okay, interesting. I thought this was the last year. Well, I mean, it's certainly, you could make the argument that any of these could be final seasons. Like, you get to the end of a season of Barry, and you're like, that could be it. Yeah, that's fair. So we think Fuchs might be dead, but we'll get back to him shortly. Nguyen, again, calling the cops out for being stupid and just... Any scene with Nguyen and the cops could just, I could, I could watch it all day. Uh, he goes to interact with Chris's widow, Sharon, uh, and Sharon mentions getting everyone together. And boy, is this going to be important. Now, Kevin, this next thing that we're going to talk about, I think you and I might be, uh, we might disagree. So we are introduced to Beignet Guy. His name is Mitch. I think this is a great one episode gag. Mitch gets to interact with all of the main characters. He interacts with Sally interacts with Hank and then interacts with Barry. And basically he serves as kind of a therapist slash making these, uh, making beignets, which Kevin, have you ever had a beignet before? Oh yeah. They're absolutely delicious. Beignets are incredible. And I could see a scenario where you go to Los Angeles and you're looking for like the hot thing. I could see this being like a really hot space, both because of the beignets, which are apparently fantastic, but also because you get to interact with Mitch. Now, Bill Hader points out that everybody that you see in line is standing alone. So that may be a huge part of why the 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 appeal of this place is is getting to talk to Mitch. And also the line is long because the it takes a while because you're talking to Mitch. So I really like this as a one episode running gag. If this is something that extended into the entire season, I maybe would get tired of it, but this was a great way to get kind of our three main main characters kind of having important conversations. Yeah, and I think it's fine as a as a Deus Ex Machina to kind of move along some stories, and it actually has a payoff when he when Barry brings the beignets to Chris's wife as the end of the episode to to Sharon. But it's like this couple was something else in the episode that kind of was like this is there's, there's a weird. Th- weird vibe to the episode, which uh, and I'll talk about it kind of combined later, but on rewatch, uh, like the guy who plays him is great. Um, and you're right. It feels like one of those, one of those spots that's popular to, to talk to him, but it's also feels like it's popular because it's popular. Like people go there cause it's the place to go. And obviously the beignets are great, but I don't know that people nowadays would put up with a line that long. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, especially in COVID times, especially in DoorDash times. Just get that stuff. But it's the but maybe it's also the appeal of talking to Mitch, which is why people go there, too. So it all kind of works out, I guess, um, especially because there's a point to it. Uh, but, yeah, I'll, exp- I'll explain a little later why I like just watch the episode. I was like, this is very strange. So it's it's tough. This episode is kind of all over the place until you get to the final few minutes. So I want to talk about the Fuchs part first. Uh, we see him in the back of a truck. He has a bullet removed by a woman in the middle of no in the quote unquote middle of nowhere. This time, they're not really in the middle of nowhere, Kevin, because really, there's a Starbucks just over the hill. They're 20 miles outside of Los Angeles. But again, Fuchs seemingly, I don't know if he fell in love with this woman, but again, this is just a fantastic running gag. 
yeah, he finds himself back in a similar situation that he was in Chechnya. And you're just like, what is with him always falling back into these like remote places with goats that he finds comfort in and then finds a reason to to throw that life away and get back into his other nonsense. And it is mentioned to him at one point that he should be looking for signs, like what he should do next. And he is ignoring all of these signs, Kevin, but he sees that paper with Barry and Gene on it. And he's like, well, I'm going to steal this truck. <laughs> and again, the beginning of episode four, what if it is revealed that Fuchs was arrested for uh, stealing the truck? Like, so many crimes committed on this show that just go uncalled for. Totally. Yeah, just uh, all the car thievery is what gets them in the end. So, yeah, that's uh, that's some pretty funny stuff. So Fuchs is still going to be a man on a mission. Then let's go to the Tom and Gene portion of this. <laughs> How did Tom get to Gene's house? That's a great question. I love that, that Tom is giving Gene all this news and Gene literally just wants to know how he got in his house. <laughs> but it is revealed that Gene Cousineau is going to get to teach a master class, basically doing what he did for Barry, except on a wider scale. $400,000 is the initial offer, but Tom thinks that he can do even better. We hear that a lot from agents in the show. They can do better. I think even later in this episode with Sally's agent. Yeah, I, I love kind of the agent running gag. So Gene is insisting ultimately that Annie is the one that, that should get to direct this. And like he really is trying to pay it forward. Like that's seemingly uh, what he is trying to do. But we'll kind of get back to the Gene storyline next what I want to do is talk about Sally. The Sally scene with uh, Vanessa Bear, also of SNL, where she's talking about a writing job on the new Medusas. It's a funny use of sound effects and words. I don't know if this scene totally works. See, I thought it was one of one of the funnier scenes in the show. Well, doesn't this just say everything about our senses of humor then? It does, but it also speaks to like you're you're telling. It's like you're you're telling us why you want Sally on this project, but you don't really say anything. And it's weird, like showrunner to agent speak that the director's like, what what the F are you talking about? Or the writer is is talking about it. But it does also seem like we cast Vanessa Bear because she does funny things, which she does. I also I think very highly of Vanessa Bear, so maybe that's part of it too. But I think it's like this weird, like nebulous reasons why we want this writer in the room that we can't articulate with words. So we use dumb feeling expressions to describe what we want here. For sure. So Sally has a new job. She's not really thrilled about it, but now we come to the main event. I think this is probably going to be one of the more talked about scenes for many reasons as Barry is chased by the motorcycle gang. The motorcycle gang enters the apartment and the roommates look completely clueless. I do love that one of them says, you be Jesse Jackson. I thought that was a pretty funny side note. The motorcycle gang give chase to Barry, and it's it's pretty incredible, just at a filmmaking level. Um, apparently, they shot this over three Sundays on those freeways, and I, I can't imagine doing this amidst Los Angeles traffic, but they did it. Uh, just great, great shots, and you can really tell where everyone is, and I think the parts of this that don't work especially if you are squeamish given the recent events, the recent mass shootings, which if you're in America, I mean, my God, there's one practically every day. So I can understand people not liking the scene for that reason, especially when they get to the used car shop and the guy just pretty much lays waste to one of the motorcycle gang members. 
but just from a filmmaking level, this is uh, this is really good stuff. And I love that they put Barry in a helmet so that the uh, the stunt person could do all the driving. Smart move. Smart move. The the shooting of the chase scene on the highway is incredible. I like they don't really use music at all. It's all just like the the sounds of the road and everything else. And I think stuff like gunshot not working and then the guy tries to pass it off to other motorcyclists and they fumble the pass and then hit another car. Everything works to me until the very end where they get to the car shop and the shooting happens. To me, that feels like a moment that would happen in a show like Atlanta. But Atlanta's also built this like surrealism into its show, whereas Barry has weird moments. But this felt like a step too far out of reality where I couldn't buy into it. But everything else shooting the the shots of the chase up into it were fantastic. But that I was just like, I don't know, feels a little un unearned may not be the word, but it just doesn't feel like it fit in this show in particular. So because Barry was in a helmet, he is able to walk away from the used car shop uh, pretty easily. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the payoff to uh, the the motorcycle gang. But it is worth noting that one of the motorcycle motorcycle gang members is alive, and it is the one who went to the apartment. And uh, boy, is he going to come back in a big way! Meanwhile, Barry finally gets to Sharon's house. Sharon is supposedly going to be hosting this event for some of the other veterans, including Barry. Gets there with the beignets intact. Most importantly. Uh, he gives her the beignets. She lets him have one, says have as many as you want. He eats one of the beignets, realizes that he has been poisoned after seeing the red Kangoole card. Now, I love that Barry is so distracted by trying to find out what's going on with the motorcycle that he is completely distracted, misses the Kangoole card, and uh, he ends up being poisoned. And uh, he is literally frothing at the mouth as uh, as this episode ends. And uh, it's pretty dark stuff, man. Pretty dark. Very dark. And this took me a rewatch to kind of understand because I thought something to do with Albert's visit to her was why she poisoned him. And like then I realized that somewhere in between Albert telling her that they should get together again. And Fuchs got to her to tell him about the murder of her husband. And that's why she takes matters into her own hands. So that really confused me until I watched it back and I was able to put it all together. But yeah, that made for one heck of an ending to the episode. And I was like, when I was watching them in order, I was like, ah, maybe I'll go to bed after episode six. I was like, nope, got to watch seven and then had to watch eight. Barry has some really really solid cliffhangers. All right. So I, I want to start episode seven by briefly talking about the Barry stuff, because even though this is a show about Barry, this is really an episode that is much more focused around the other characters. Barry is basically uh, in danger of dying. And we get, I would say this, this reminded me a lot of the Sopranos. The Sopranos would do a lot of these very intricate dream sequences. And this was another case of that as Barry is dreaming basically about all the people that he has killed and who saves him? It's George. Ryan's father actually is the one that keeps him in the car. At one point, George talks about like that he could take vengeance, but apparently he did a better job of listening to whatever Anna was saying in her morality tale more so than Fuchs. George decides that he is going to take Barry to the hospital, but not before killing himself. So, Kevin, any thoughts on the Barry part of episode seven, which is entitled Candy Asses? This worked for me so well. As I talked about, the the shooting at the car scene kind of felt like out of place for the show because Barry had seen the like the the bullet wounds in people's heads. You're like, okay, he's seeing things. He's having these illusions. So to me, the stuff where he sees the beach and the people he's killed and all that stuff 
really worked for me. And I, and it was nice to see a lot of those people again, the stuff with the father worked for me really well too. Cause you establish immediately with the, the church that he's a religious man. And I love the speech he gave in the car. And he's like, I have kind of have two choices here with you. I could kill you and get vengeance for my son. But for me, I want to see my son again. So as a religious man, to me, it makes sense that he would think if I murder Barry, I get vengeance, but I go to hell. My son is in heaven. If I want to see him again, I let him live. And that's how I see him. So I'm going to let this man live as sort of like this weird assurance to get into heaven and then kill himself. And hopefully he'll get to see his son again in heaven, too. All of that worked for me a lot. And this is one of my favorite episodes of the season. And a lot of it has to do with the Barry part of the episode. And because I like that, that choice, because there is, there's something with the agent and like, you're, cause you're wondering like, why do all these people let keep letting Barry get away? And the first one is, you know, they mess up shooting and he shoots her son. This one is a deliberate choice because of his spirituality. And that works for me really well. Cause that was something that did bother me until rewatch too. I'm like, why do all these people keep, let, keep letting Barry get away? And this really worked for me here. I really enjoyed the very part of this episode. Yeah. And we're going to talk about it when we talk about Nguyen in episode eight. Like there are plausible reasons for why they keep letting him seemingly escape. So I think it's and and it really does have a tremendous payoff at the end. So I want to talk about the Sally part next because boy, does her boy, do things go wrong here. Sally absolutely lays into Natalie. Uh, on the elevator, it's it is a really uncomfortable scene. I mean, she calls her the c word. She mentions the carrots. This is this is awful. And very clearly, the way it's shot, the way she speaks, I mean, it's clearly meant to mirror uh, what Barry did to her five episodes earlier. And what makes the scene all the sadder is that Sally is in this writer's room. She's very unhappy. The lead writer of the show is very bad at his job. Um, and they're just walking out of the room. And Sally happens to see Natalie running a room of her own. And she just is very angry. And I think that any sympathies that we may have had for Sally across the season, a lot of that goes away with just her awful treatment of Natalie in this one moment. Just it's uh, it's real bad, man. It's real bad. And it's a great depiction of how sometimes you're a product of how people treat you. Like the way Natalie was treated by Sally as her assistant is now exactly how Nat- Natalie is treating her assistant. And the way Barry treated Sally is now how Sally treated somebody who she feels like is taking away something from her or scorning her, even though she's really not. And I thought that was such a great way to show to, to show that in this scene and make Sally. I mean, if she's not going to be redeemable even worse in the next season, but this is just like, she's sunk to an all time low here with the way she, she treats her in this elevator. And it is very uncomfortable. A lot of uncomfortable scenes in this show. Yeah. And uh, then later on in the episode, we get a meeting where Sally has sent this just awful apology, Kevin. The only way it could have been worse is if she sent it on the notes app, I think. Notes app or, uh, I mean, we've seen some bad video apologies from other people. But the fact that it's like it's an apology that she's sorry, but then goes into. But let me just say, don't trust people you're with. And her agent's like, what? Why did you do? Why did you say anything? Like, this isn't I, I an think, apology. It's it's not subtle. But Sally, as she is yelling at her agent, is literally backing into the dark. I was about to say, I was like, yeah, this is not a subtle thing at all. Very, very on the nose. And they just like, well, I have to drop you. Like, 
and Lindsay like, you is justified no for doing it. Like, of as course. much as I think we are supposed to sympathize with Sally, Lindsay is correct. Yeah, she because she says like, I have to drop you. Like, this isn't. It's not even my choice to drop you. Like, you've given me no choice. This just is what it is. Gene, the master class. So this is a tough episode, I think, in a lot of ways. And the Gene stuff it gets pretty serious, more so in the next episode. But here, he's just having a ball with his master class. I think the stuff at the beginning is pretty hilarious, just with the masks and, and all that stuff. I think we get, and I, this is a tough episode because you get so many uncomfortable moments. You get some really dark stuff. But you get this wonderful scene where, so Annie is the director, but Annie hasn't done this in a while. She basically hasn't had a career in such a long time, but that she is, she is trying to direct. And I love the moment that she has with uh, her, basically a script assistant on the, on the shoot. Her name is Cheryl. And they have a genuinely touching moment where Cheryl's like, I got you. And Again, in a show that has so many awful things happen, a moment like this really stands out. Yeah, definitely. I think that's when you have a show like this that's very dark, the light moments like this do really stand out. I like Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl rules. I I hope that there's a way that we can see uh, Cheryl and Annie again uh, in the fourth season. So I didn't mention in episode six, mostly because he doesn't really become an important factor in episode seven, but... Uh, episode six introduced us to uh, to Janice Moss's father, Jim. Kevin, I'm not going to lie. Robert fucking Wisdom is uh, is incredible. Uh, he is probably best known for playing Major Howard Bunny Colvin on The Wire. That's where I always find him from. What an incredible character. Like, you, you want to talk about competency. We've been dealing with so much incompetency with the police, with so many people that are letting Barry off the hook. Robert fucking Wisdom is not letting anyone off the hook, and he makes that very clear, especially in episode seven. Amazing character. Just gets gets down to business and gets what he needs to way faster than anybody where it's their literal job to do so. Ken and Jim, uh, Ken, Ken Goulet, Fuchs had a conversation with, uh, with Jim Moss in episode six. They have another one in episode seven, and Jim just tells, <laughs> he tells Fuchs to, to come on over, and they're going to go for a drive. I, I this drive is just incredible for two reasons. Number one, we learned that Jim had convinced his own interrogator in Vietnam to commit suicide. So that should tell you everything that you need to know. I'm a firm believer in showing, not telling. But this is a great example of where telling makes all the difference because that's not something you can really show. But the fact that you could convince your own interrogator to commit suicide just says a lot. And I love that. Without, he doesn't even mention it. He doesn't make a big deal about it. Jim literally just drops Fuchs off right in front of the police station. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. This, oh, I love this moment so much. And Fuchs's realization when he realizes where they are is so good. Uh, later on, Jim confronts Cousineau uh, because he knows that, that, that Gene had dated his daughter. I love that he sees the sweat. They put a close-up on the sweat to realize that he's lying. And... Man, just just great stuff involving Jim Moss. I love I love I love his character so much. And in a season with great casting and great character choices, this might be the best. I'll, I'll just say Jim Moss is f- phenomenal. What a great late season casting choice. Just really changes the dynamic of the show completely. We get Nguyen interrogating Fuchs uh, at the end of the episode, and he basically finds out that Barry killed Chris. And this is the point when Nguyen leaves, grabs his gun, and quickly leaves the office. That I believe we get, uh, we get that line. 
the line. It's the be- it's the beginning of episode. All right, eight, so it's the beginning. Of- him leaving. Yeah. So episode eight is starting now, which we've talked about the starting now phrase that has been used a couple of times across the the course of the of the season uh, of the two seasons, I should say, two previous ones. Barry is still dreaming at the beginning. Uh, he sees this time he does not only see just the dead people, but now he sees Mr. Cousineau and Sally. Barry is is recovered though. And he heads to the apartment and his roommates left. Uh, meanwhile, Annie has gotten another offer. Annie gets an offer as Cousineau uh, gets a, a phone call. The scene between Jim and J- Jim and Jean on a, on a show that is really intense. Again, this is an episode that apparently caused a, a staff member on Barry to have a panic attack. And I, after watching the scene with Jim and Jean alone, you can see why. You completely understand. And I love in the previous episode, too, when he confronts Kusno and sees the sweat on his head. It shows you just how this guy can read cues. He could be so convincing in this scene where he just repeats the same question over and over again until he gets the answer in increasingly like hostile tones is yes, totally understand why panic attack happened. And it goes to show just how incredible he is as this interrogator to get what he needs out of Kusino and to make him realize his love for his daughter versus love for Barry and to, to pay off the end of the episode and the season. After turning down previously, potentially wanting to psychologically torture someone, Sally is now all about it because that's what she wants to do to Natalie. And uh, she's talking with Barry and Barry basically says that he's going to hell. That's basically what he's saying. He doesn't want Sally to go down this path with him. And it is at this point that motorcycle guy comes in. He was very quiet a couple episodes prior. Same thing here. He immediately punches Barry in the face, attempts to choke Sally out. And Kevin, I'm not going to lie. This choking scene goes for an uncomfortably long time. And I 100% thought that Sally was a goner. The choking scene is the one thing I fast forwarded through when I rewatched it. I could not watch it again. That should show you how uncomfortable it is. Yeah, I I certainly can't blame you. I, I think that it is it is uncomfortably long. On a, on a season finale that's 29 minutes, I, I don't know that it needed to go this long, but it certainly builds the tension. It makes you think she is really going to die. Uh, but she eventually does grab an unseen knife, stabs him in the side of the head. He staggers into the soundproof recording booth, and she beats the absolute hell out of him with a baseball bat. It's a great payoff for the recording booth bit. Barry wakes up, sees what Sally is doing, and Barry says to Sally, I did this. And again, just a really intense, I'm going to use the word intense a lot, but it really is just, that's that's the best word. It's like, this is a really, really intense moment. And uh, Barry says, Barry tells Sally to go home. And while he is saying for her to go home to her apartment, I think home means something different for her after this moment it's it's a wild scene and i think the thing is that i think when this shit wants to be violent it can be really violent but i think it's worth noting again that every time the the beating of the baseball bat is done from the wide angle and we don't see what his body looks like after she hits him so many times with the bat either right you see you you see like on the soundproof booth which is it's a little harder to see because it's darker colors on the wall but you see some of the blood splatter and then him come and get her and almost as uncomfortable as watching her be choked is the close-up on her face as barry holds her hands in his in his you know holds her face in his hands you see the little blood splatter inside of her face her tears coming down and he's telling her who did this and making her repeat that it was you know until she says it was him who did this 
is a such a tough watch. But what I also like about this scene is a lot of this is, is stuff I have to imagine she went through in her first relationship. And in those previous seasons, she goes over scenarios in her head of like what she could have done or should have done if she could live it all over again and be the braver person in that situation. And I have to imagine her stabbing the guy and then him going in there and, and instead of running away, taking the baseball bat to beat him to presumably to death is a lot of all that emotion coming out of being channeled into this one person of like, not going to let this happen again where I'm attacked and I run away. I'm going to take action here. And it results in her doing what she does. And of course, Barry has all these demons and kills on him. So what's one more if he could spare her who he presumably still loves. And you're right. The going home thing uh, pays off well with where, what ends up with her at the end of the season too. But yeah, this scene is going to stick with me for a while from the from the start to the finish. It is uh it is a hell of a thing and just in case you're wondering, okay, maybe we'll get a scene that kind of cools us down. Nope, that's not what happens at all. We go to Hank. Hank had gone to Bolivia in the previous episode and what you know, Kevin, he just happened to find the one person who would know where all the action is happening and uh he uh puts him to sleep and uh kind of a kind of a Deus Ex Machina, but yeah, it's uh, it's but something it, that happens. It works because I love that the guy's putting together the blow dart to knock him out. And Hank's like, oh, you know what? I thought that's what you're going to do, but I didn't want to be rude. For some reason, that didn't bother me, that little uh, bit of reality. But it's because it's Hank. And Hank explains it, and it it works. It works it was, with who it Hank was, is. It was funny. It, it was funny enough to to make you forget about it and to not necessarily worry about it. So that's why it didn't bother me as much. But... And there is an incredibly violent scene, and I, we don't know it's violent because we see it, but because we hear it, we see none of it as basically a panther of some sort eats and murders his way through the prison next door. So Hank is in one prison, handcuffed to a radiator. Next door, some of his buddies are there, some of the Bolivian guards are there, and this 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 panther. Now, apparently, Kevin. <laughs> Apparently, some staff members, uh, they they had a fake panther ready to go, and Bill Hader's like, no. He's like, we are not going to see it. I think that's pretty funny. I, I just want to see the look on the person's face when he realized he was not going to get to be a panther. I do think that is one of those scenes, though, that is you, it, your imagination for what you hear is so much better than whatever they would have put together. Yeah. Um, it also probably saved a lot on the budget, too. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that's 100% why I'm sure that choice was made. But I also think it go like when you see the door next when when Hank hears the door next door open, he looks out his window and someone vomits and you see that at the floor of his bed. That goes to show how, how awful whatever that person witnessed went through. Uh, so one of the guards, we do the only residuals that we see, we see a guard puking at what he's seeing. Um, and we also see some blood seep from underneath the wall as well. Hank is desperate because he knows that this animal is going to come and eat him or the guard's going to come and get him. A guard does try to come and get him. He escapes. He takes the gun and he just shoots everything in sight across the way. I, it, I think he kills the animal, right? Like that's very clearly what happens. It's one of the things that he does, right? Yeah. Cause he gets the gun, shoots it through the wall. I think you even, you hear the animal dying and that's how he's able to escape. So Hank is then making his way up through this mansion. He sees a picture of Cristobal, Elena, and two kids. So very clearly, this has been a long-term relationship. And what Cristobal is going through, and this is not something that is clear to me, uh, just watching the episode, even on rewatch, but 
it is something that comes across to me um, based on Bill Hader basically said that crystal ball is going through kind of ele- electroshock therapy, uh, courtesy of a wife and this male guard who was seducti- seductively dancing uh, because they're basically trying to wipe the gay out of him. And Hank just nonchalantly shoots both of them and consoles Cristobal. This is the first time that we have seen Hank kill anyone. Now, we know that he's done it, but I feel like this is going to be really important. So kind of our last time seeing Hank for the season is him consoling Cristobal while they are in Bolivia. I didn't realize that was the first time we had seen him actually like kill somebody as opposed to just ordering it or whatever. But yeah, that's that is significant for sure. And also just an... Another uncomfortable thing to watch this man being shocked to death. It's like this really like surreal scene with the music playing and the dancing and him being shocked by his wife and stuff. It's just very bizarre. But yeah, it, it but it's but it was sweet to see Hank save Cristobal in the end in a weird twisted way. Yeah, I would agree with that. And just in case you think, oh, we're going to get some relief. Nope. Next scene. Nguyen confronting Barry in the desert by the tree. Um, Boy, this scene, it's just. This is just a relentless episode of television, and to say it's one of my favorites is really hard because I don't know that I ever want to rewatch this again because you go from what happens with Sally to what happens with Hank to Barry almost dying because Nguyen is going to kill him, and Nguyen, the only reason that Nguyen lets him live is because he has a daughter. That's what it comes down to. Barry saved his, Barry saved his life. Nguyen was able to get married, have a kid. That is That is the only reason that Barry is alive, but the scream that Barry lets out, man, just wow. Just wow. It's a it's a great scene. I don't know. Something about him letting Barry live. I, I believe that he wouldn't kill him, but just letting him go for some reason doesn't sit with me as well. Maybe it's just because it comes so soon after Ryan's father lets him go. I don't know. It felt like either too soon or a little like unrealistic that this this big FBI guy would just let him go again. I could see him not killing him, but something about this, the, the, uh, the buy-in was not as strong with me here, even though I do recognize it's a good scene. I, I, I really wonder if this Nguyen character is going to get expanded upon in season four, because there's some characters that like Katie, Katie and Natalie, I don't know that we're going to see them in season four, but I definitely think that Nguyen is going to be an important part of season four because I think the law enforcement part of this season needs a lot of work and they need competent people. And Nguyen is competent. Yeah, I could see him sticking around. But what, you know, what role he takes is like, do does he lead them yeah. to Barry or does he try to obscure information to help Barry? That'll all be very interesting to me. So Barry tells Sally that he's going to go pick up some things and Sally gets on a plane to go to Joplin. Kevin, I actually looked this up. Yes, there really are flights from Los Angeles to Joplin, Missouri. Okay, well, that's good to know. No, yeah, di- that's, that's, a, that's a weird direct flight, but okay. Yeah, I know, right? It, it's, it's a weird one, but it really does happen. So the final scene. So one of the things that Barry had told Gene earlier is he, Barry kind of called Gene out for being a bad actor. So this final scene is, is a payoff to that. As Jim calls Barry and says to come to his home, Barry's like, nope, not going to do that. Gene tells Barry that Jim is going to try to take them down. Gene has the gun that he got from Rip Torn. And again, this is kind of a callback because Gene is acting. Barry sees Gene and decides that he is going to kill Jim Moss. It is worth noting that Gene is like, no, don't do it. And 
he's I think he's trying to be sincere without being sincere. Like Gene knows that Barry is is going to try to kill him at this point, but he really is trying to play it up. And just as Barry, he goes into the house, he's about to shoot Jim in the head. The cops come up and Barry is arrested. A shocking conclusion to season three, but given where everything is gone, really this is the only payoff that we could have had. And the season, it's worth noting, the season does not end on Barry, but it ends with Jim outside of his house alone, and there's a little spotlight that is on Janice Moss's picture. So I just wanted to mention that. A a very interesting way to end season three as the sins of season one are really coming back to bite Barry in the ass. How good is the reveal of Henry Winkler's face in that final scene? When you see that, when Barry realizes that he was set up. I mean, if, if Henry Winkler wins another Emmy, that this episode is going to be why he does it. Just a phenomenal, surprising way to end the season. We were truly like, oh my God, like they have him. What what happens next? How is he going to get out of this bucket of syrup? I, I think there are some scenarios, but boy, it's it's going to be hard. Like this is this. They have certainly put themselves in a pickle and you almost feel like Bill Hader has gone to the uh, to the Breaking Bad school of we're going to write ourselves into the deepest, darkest corner and get ourselves out now. And the one thing I will say is Bill Hader said that they re- they wrote season four during the pandemic and then they went back and rewrote and reshot some scenes from season three. So very clearly they have a direction for season four because they were able to go back and kind of tweak season three. So they know where they're going. They, they're not going to say anything until the episode there, but this is not a situation where, um, well, when are we going to get season four? Like it's already written and I believe they're going into production soon enough. That's good. That, that makes me feel good to know that they had, they wrote season four, made some changes season three for coherent sake or better storytelling or what have you. Uh, that makes me look forward to season four even more. Yeah. Overall, I think, I, I really enjoyed season three. I would say probably the best season so far. I don't know if it's my favorite season so far, but I think just in terms of the writing and some other things, a uh, couple things you could clean up, but in general, a really strong season. If you haven't watched it, definitely try to watch it in a more condensed form. And if you watched it week to week, I think it's worth revisiting in a more condensed form too. And I would say probably either episode four or seven is my favorite. Uh, what did you think of the season? Episode six or eight, probably my favorite. And maybe that speaks to the quality of the season that we, we listed off four different episodes of the season that could have been our favorites. And there was absolutely no overlap. So I think that speaks to how good I think this, this is definitely better than season two. I don't know if I'm going to say it's better than season one, but it certainly is up there. And in, in, in an atmosphere where there's so much glut out there, this really stands out as a four-hour storytelling device that is episodic but also has really good on lo- ongoing storylines. The way that they were able to balance everything, I think they did a fantastic job. And the fact that they were able to introduce a number of new characters and they fit right in. Like, Jim Moss is as good of a character as anybody on this show. I would say that Tom, Gene's agent, is as good as any character on this show. So I think the show is going to change in season four again, and I am very much looking forward to it. Like, if you told me that season four was already shot and we're going to get it in the fall, I would be super excited for that because 
this is one of the very best shows of 2022. And I don't know if you want to get into any speculation about season four, but I have I have a couple of ideas that I would like to run past you. What do you think? Yeah, you can go ahead and share. I'll say I, I this is a cop out, but I put in a lot of thought and stuff about Saul and things like that. But Barry's one I just sort of watched and enjoyed the ride. I really have no predictions or thoughts on the upcoming season four. Uh, just to say that I'm very much looking forward to see what direction they take, especially that you told me that it's been written, what you told me about them going back to season three to change or fix some things to make it more to, to lead into that because of the writing of season four. So I'll let you take it away with your predictions. So I, I don't think there's going to be a time jump. I think you have to you have to pick up right where you left off. Right. I feel like that's mandatory. Yes, I agree with that. Unless there's something like if they want to do a little something to fill in the past of some people, like some of the newer characters, that would be okay. But I'm cool without it. So I I think that Sally is probably going to spend most of season four in Joplin. Like, I think this is something that where they're going to kind of separate her from whatever is going on with Barry. And I think with good reason, like, I think it'll be interesting to kind of explore someplace that isn't Los Angeles, uh, gives us some new settings and whatnot. So I have a feeling that Sally's going to spend a lot of her time there and any interactions with Barry will probably not happen until the end of the season. I think the Fuchs, Gene and Barry storyline is going to kind of become one and that there's not going to be as much separation. I think Cristobal and Hank, I think Cristobal and Hank though are also going to be separated in some way. And I'm curious if they're going to interact with Barry at all and what role the drugs are going to play. I'm curious, is Barry going to be released on technicality? Is there going to be some sort of entrapment? Is Fuchs going to take the heat? Is next season going to be the last one? I, if if the fourth season is the penultimate one, I, I just I can't see a scenario where this goes longer than five seasons, though. And I think next season is going to be about how Barry is going to kind of escape. And I almost wonder if they might put Barry and Fuchs together to maybe go after the cartels, like go after a bigger frit go after a bigger fish. Like, I wonder if that's a possibility and that's how you have Cristobal and Hank more involved in the show by having Barry kind of be undercover. I'm wondering how they were, how they would make that happen. Yeah. It's just, it's really tough because what, what is Barry being arrested for is also a question in my mind. Like I know we joked, but like what, like, yes, he did point a gun at Jim at Jim Moss, but like, what do they actually have on him? Exactly. So it's like they have him, but is he well-trained in lying or whatever else? And can he escape? Can he, can he make his interrogator kill themselves? You know, like these are the questions the the police he's going to aren't necessarily that comp are, are that competent. The FBI person allegedly has his back. What is he, what, what really is going to happen to him? I hope Albert Nguyen's like, but we said starting now. <laughs> he's like shaking his shoulders. You said starting now. No, you said starting now. Oh, man, what a, what a fantastic season of television, Kevin. I'm going to say what we're going to do next month because – so we've had a theme of cancel too soon, but unfortunately uh, we have been rudely interrupted by great TV shows that are still going. But, Kevin, we will be returning to our theme next month. Uh, we're going to get a little meta with our choice for next month. I was going to – I was going to do a segue earlier. I said, you know, I'm excited for season four, but I'm also very excited for what we're going to be watching in month of August as canceled too soon returns with a pick of yours, Jerome, something I have never seen. I thought you were going to say reviewing and then we could really, we could really go there. No, so I'm not I, taking away the, the show from you. It's your choice. 
So the show that we are going to be reviewing is a show that you probably have not seen. The show is actually called Review. It aired on Comedy Central a few years ago. And when I say nobody watched it, I'm going to get into how few people watched it. Uh, you could buy it incredibly enough on DVD. Kevin Ford is one of the only people that probably has this DVD. You can also stream it on Paramount Plus as well. But that is what we will be talking about next month. Uh, it's going to be a little different because there really there is some storyline, and we're going to be talking about like how that's relevant. But I wanted this show to be an hour. We blew past that. Next 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 month really is going to be uh, a bit of a shorter episode because. It's going to be a lot of just talking about, like, what is this show trying to say in the big picture, about review culture and things of that nature. But Kevin has not seen this. I am very excited for him because we review stuff, so it'll be fun to watch somebody else review stuff and uh, and slowly lose his mind. Yeah, I, I know of the show. I know the conceit of the show. I really like Andy Daly, so I'm excited to watch it. You know, three seasons at 22 episodes for a Comedy Central show. That'll be a breeze to watch. What's interesting is, is that the DVD actually came out like right before the pandemic started. And I know, you know, nobody buys physical media anymore, but I actually listened to Andy Daly on a, on um, a podcast. I listened to, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of it. It's Nicole Byer and another comedian. They had never seen star Wars. Uh, so they went and watched every star Wars movie and they had a guest on to talk about it. And they had Andy Daly on for, I think revenge of the Sith. And he's a huge Star Wars fan, and and he was just plugging review. The DVD had just come out. So that made me excited to watch it because we – you had at least mentioned that it was a show, show you wanted to do, but I don't know that we had decided we were going to do it for the month of August yet. So honestly, that episode made me think, you know what? I really enjoyed hearing Andy Daly on this. I want to watch this show. And sure enough, when we finished recording our Saul podcast last month, we went off there and we talked about what we were going to do. We both had a review in mind. So we're in sync. I'm ready to watch the show, ready to talk about it with you next month. For sure. And then in September, we will be going final episode of Real Bad. It's it's funny to think like that's going to be our last. Like we've done so many hours on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and we are very close to being done. Well, for now, do you have the the uh, the faith that they're not going to exploit this property any further? I think it's going to be really – I think unless Vince Gilligan has an idea, I don't think they will. I hope not, and who's to say that it's something that if even it happens, we cover it. I mean if it wasn't Vince Gilligan or someone else, you know, it could be – it could still be the end of the show for us. But I don't know. I have um, I have little faith in the way that a lot of the, the movie and television industry are where they're just bringing back properties or putting them way past their expiration date. You know, the one thing I will yeah. say is it, AMC does not own Better Call Saul, so I think that's a good thing. If AMC owned it, I think it would be much more likely to happen, but it's a Sony joint, so I think it is much less likely to happen because Sony is not going to piss off one of the few big writers slash showrunners that they have. Fair enough, yeah. So uh, new Vince Gilligan stuff, I'd be more than welcome to to watch. Yeah, I mean, YouTube, if you're but... telling me there's going to be a Vince Gilligan show, yeah, I'm going to watch it, of course. But yeah, so so I'm excited. We've got review lined up for August, our final uh, real bad in September, and then maybe we'll we'll see some other canceled too soon shows that we can bring to the table to, to close out party, 2022. We got party down. We've got togetherness. We got um, some choices. We got some choices, absolutely. So for Kevin, my name is Jerome. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next month. Well, I'm going to put not accepting beignets from Jerome on my list of things to do. <laughs>